Okay, that's fine. Okay, recording. All right. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this opportunity to talk to my brother about Calvinism and open theism. And God, I just ask that you would allow this conversation to be cordial and, and edifying and allow it to be an example of how Christians can love each other and, and disagree and discuss things and, and just show other world in the body of Christ that we don't have to be nasty, we don't have to be mean, um, but we can act like Christians who are redeemed by your blood and saved by your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Excellent, excellent. So, James, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, I, I need to get to know you. Uh, you're my new new best friend, and so got to know my new best friend. So, um, I've been a Christian for uh, several years now. I was saved at 15 years old. Uh, came over to Reform theology a couple couple years later through discussions with my father and. Uh, wrestling uh, through that that whole issue um i am married i have four kids good nice uh, so, uh, yeah they're they keep me busy they're from six and then i have a uh a five-year-old about to be five and then three and then one four four kids in all and uh three three boys one girl so wonderful blessings from the lord uh, to me i also uh, finished graduated from uh, southern baptist theological seminary and I serve as a pastoral assistant at my local church, and so I just try to I try to balance all of that. Try to balance serving uh, my family. Try to balance uh, serving my local church, often uh, teaching and preaching uh, there, and then try to also have discussions with other Christians on theological positions, and and just try to understand where they're, where they're coming from, whether that be relationism or uh, reform theology with with Leighton Flowers, and then. Open theism, all of these uh, various uh, topics interest me because just that's my heart is to be a teacher and just trying to understand uh, the truth of God. Yeah, everything you said sounds great. Uh, so I, I'm Chris Fisher. You can call me Chris or Christopher, whichever you prefer. A lot of people they just know me by shorthand by heretic. No, I was just joking. They don't call me that. <laughs> Not to my face. But uh, I got six kids, and so. You're you're probably a little bit younger than me, so you got time to catch up. So you gotta That's right. pump up those numbers a little bit there. Yeah, uh, so, we have to. Yeah, yeah, we do have to. We do have to. Gotta get some more babies out there. That's how we're gonna, how we're gonna, you know, populate America, make yeah, America Christian again, or just spread the gospel, be fruitful, and multiply. Right? Yeah, I know it. And so, yeah, I've been uh, doing my podcast for I don't know, like two or three years now. So I got like like hundreds of hours of me talking. Some people, some people have listened to them all. I don't know how they could stand me that much, but uh, <laughs> good times. Um, so I'm an open theist, an open theist. I, I don't know if, how much you know about open theism. Do you know anything about open theism? General idea of open theism. I, I would be curious to uh, kind of understand, you know, where you're coming from. And, and also I would be interested to know how did you, become an open theist so what was that journey for you like what was that journey for me so my dad he was he used to be a staunch calvinist and uh he moved to denver and he needed some greek lessons and so he was in his local uh or his local bible shop bible uh you know christian bookstore and he asked the girl at the counter he says uh you know, I'm looking for some free Greek lessons. And she's like, well, my dad teaches Greek. And he says, well, how much does he charge for that? And she's like, it's free. And he's like, mm -hmm. that's my price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And so he, he started going to that uh, and he started interacting with Bob Hill. And Bob Hill was a Greek teacher out of uh, Derby Bible Church in, in Denver, Colorado. And uh, he was an open theist, uh, this Greek teacher. And my dad was, you know, yeah, staunch Calvinist or whatever and converted to open theism. So I grew up my whole life basically being open theist, being taught Greek and, and Latin and and Hebrew when I was a kid. Not that I'm a Latin or Hebrew or Greek scholar or anything. I think I mentioned to you a little bit before. That stuff kind of goes away as you get older. You know, you're, you're really deep into it. And then it just kind of phases out. So I probably need to spin back up on that some a little bit. But uh, yeah, so it's good. I grew up a Christian, grew up in uh, Denver, Colorado, and and kind of South Dakota too, kind of a mix between the two. But uh, yeah, like weekly Bible studies, like twice weekly Bible studies, and all sorts of good stuff. So yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I was I was introduced very early on. We've I've spent my whole life in Calvinist churches, and so it's like I'm surrounded by people who dislike me or yell at me. I remember one one story. I was at, at Summit Ministries, Colorado, and I was on this bus defending open theism. I'm surrounded by maybe like like seven or eight people all just trying to yell their points at me at the same time. It's like I'm sitting here just trying to defend myself. It's, oh, it's good times. It works. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's in, It's really interesting. Uh, you have an interesting story there because uh, it sounds like your foundation was open theism. You weren't kind of you know, coming out of, of Calvinism, coming out of Arminianism, it sounds like you just organically were taught this by your, your fathers, you know, growing yeah, up. Yeah, so, so my father really focused on concepts such as omniscience, where, you know, God doesn't necessarily know every single aspect of the future in any definitive sense. Like, a traditional omniscience states that God knows propositions as true or false, about the future inherently ungenerated in himself from eternity open theism would reject that category of thought that god learns things through observation or god knows through his actions i know what i'm going to do that type of thing so there's different ways mechanisms which god gains information so so this this type of omniscience i guess was taught to me from a young age but other concepts like when i started talking to my dad about most of the church believes in stuff things like uh, omnipresence. God God is in every square inch of, of every place on earth. And uh, my dad was very open to just letting me explore it for myself. I said, hey, one day after church, uh, they were talking about omnipresence. I came to my dad and I was like, dad, uh, where's the biblical defense for this idea? So he just goes down to the bookshelf. He pulls out a systematic theology and he hands it to me. And I, I look at the evidence and it's really not there. It's It's not there. So uh, if very early, I guess, I've, I've questioned a lot of these things that we're taught, which don't necessarily have biblical support. So first and foremost, I would consider myself a biblical a biblicalist, someone who cares about the biblical evidence, someone who, who wants the data and wants to believe what the data says, rather than what tradition tells us. The Bible over tradition. I hope that could. Uh, I hope that resonates with you. I hope that's your, your yeah. idea and approach to scripture. As I mean, well. I'm I'm a I'm a biblicist as well. Um, that I ultimately will follow the data wherever it wherever it goes. With that being said, I also believe that the Bible does teach that the Holy Spirit will lead His church into all truth, and I also believe that the Bible also teaches that God has gifted His church with uh, teachers and preachers and and all of these things. And so with that, with that in mind, um, while it is uh, theoretically possible that the church could have got something wrong from the, from the very beginning, I would say it's more likely not the case than is the case, 
right? There's a, I have a, and I think just we all should have a suspicion of newer doctrines wherever they come. And so when saying, uh, you know, listen to me, I'm coming out in from the desert 600 years after Christ, everything before me is wrong, come listen to me, right? Or, or someone else coming in America saying the same thing. And we've seen this time and time again. And, you know, I always say everyone thinks that they're Martin Luther, but 99% of the people are not Martin Luther, they're the heretic. Yeah. You know, and I'm not, and I don't say that to, to say that you're a heretic. I'm just saying I'm cautioning to say while I'm willing to go where the scripture uh, goes, I would say the majority of the time people are actually deviating from what the scripture teaches and, and what the Holy Spirit has led his church to believe uh, and not discovering new truth. But I am open to say if you're saying this is a biblical argument, let's go to the Bible because, you know, ultimately if the church has deviated, I don't want to follow them into the ditch. Yeah. Right. Um, I and, and it really though is it can't be that big of a ditch. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's un, it's doubtfully a huge ditch. Um, so, but so never I want to believe the Bible. You're not a Catholic, are you? No, no, I'm certainly not 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 a Catholic. But even Catholicism, um, I I think it's a, a wrong reading of Catholicism to think that since you know the earliest church that all of the the church was teaching this and then it was somehow rediscovered by Martin Luther hundreds and. Uh, you know, 1600 years later, I think that's a wrong reading. And I think if we go back to Martin Luther and the reformers, they were pointing to uh, pre-reformers uh, and, and pre-teachers saying, no, 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 the Catholic Church has encrusted and changed what these previous uh, teachers were teaching and what we find in the Bible. So they yeah. weren't just saying scripture alone, forget everyone else. They were saying scripture and these other guys have been teaching this and we've, we've gone off course. So I, I would make very similar claims to that, that, uh, you know, uh, the Catholic Church ruled for uh, uh, 10,000 years, right? 10,000 years of, uh, of uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, ah, let me re change that real quick. The Catholic Church ruled for thousands of years, right? A couple thousand years uh, of, of complete dominance of the church. And uh, then the reformers had to break away from that. Yeah, absolutely, and, I, and I, I'm I'm granting that. So, so I'm saying that that can happen. It can be the case that um, the the church can uh, be encrusted with false doctrine and and little by little, right, swerve off of the truth. Which I think is exactly what happened in the Reformation. Is that people started adding one little thing after another after another, and if you do that, eventually, you know, hundreds of years later, you start getting really far off, right? So right. one example would be that the, the saints, uh, the believers, were honoring the, the martyrs. That didn't seem that dangerous at first, to honor martyrs. Well, why not, right? These people are sacrificed and, and, and sacrificed for Jesus. We should honor them. All of a sudden, though, this honoring them slips into you know relics and slips into now they're basically worshiping uh, these, these martyrs. It didn't start that way, and we're not finding that in the Scripture, but it was a slow progression. So I'm, I'm agreeing with you uh, yeah. in principle that whatever the Bible teaches, just I'm gonna go. So one of the things I do on my channel. We, oh, I'm sorry. You, you kind of broke up, so no, I no, thought no, you no. had stopped there, and so uh, so I was interjecting. What, one of the things I do on my channel is I I delve into early church history. I, I look at Augustine. I look at Origin of Alexandria. I look at Clement of Alexandria, and we we trace the Neoplatonic roots of a lot of these teachings. Like you know, in Augustine. In the Confessions, he, he admits that the Bible was absurd until he read it in light of Platonism. When he had to take it at face value, that's when he rejected the Bible because 
It was all nonsense to him. And it's not until he was able to get this super secret spiritual reading of it that he started accepting the Bible. And and we see those those uh, stems of uh, Christian history throughout the early church fathers where they're spir- having to spiritualize the text in order to accept it. Yeah, yeah. Again, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised um, the fact that everyone is a, a creature of their environment, right? So a lot today... Uh, we're dealing with uh, inclusivism and pluralism and feminism and 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 uh, anti-creation views and evolution. And so it's not really that surprising that all of a sudden people are finding, you know, the Bible is compatible with all of these things uh, now. I mean, that, that shouldn't surprise us at all. So, no, it doesn't surprise me per se that you have a Greek philosophical thought and people steep into that philosophy and then going to the scripture already presupposing that. And then bringing uh, bringing that out of uh, out of the text. So so no, that doesn't that wouldn't surprise yeah. me per se. Um, but but again, I'm I'm just saying in general though, and I think this is uh, pretty much all not all, but many people will say this. Generally, we do believe that the church uh, God has been leading His church, and I, I'm generally opposed to the idea of here in 2019 we're supposed to lead a revolution to go and conquer all of the churches back with pure theology that they lost from the time of the apostles. You know. Uh, 2,000 years ago, generally I think, no, no, we're wrapping up history here, and we need to continue to spread the gospel and not try to go re-evangelize all the churches that are already there. But, but again, <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to go into the biblical data. I'm willing to argue that most Christians are open theists when you talk to them, until you actually ask them if they're open theists. They'll, they'll pray like the future's open. They'll pray like God listens to their prayers, generally responds, generally a g- genuine give-and-take relationship. They don't pray like the future is set. They don't act like the future is is all decided meticulously. So I would say your your normal, average layman is practically an open theist already. It's interesting. Um, I, I would agree with you in the point that that the average layman, including myself, uh, pray and and act as if uh, the, the past is the past and, and the present is the present and the future is yet to come, right? Um, I would say the vast majority of people uh, act, act that way. I, I would dispute, though, that uh, if you, I would say the average Christian, if you ask them, the vast majority of all Christians, you say, does God know the future? Does God know the future with absolute precision? They would say, yes, he does. And, and so while I agree with you that uh, people uh, treat the future as open, which I do myself, I don't think that that makes them open theists. Open theism is a specific claim about God's knowledge. And I did want to ask you about this. That, um, you were talking about open theism and conceptions of God's omniscience. I remember mm-hmm. you saying that. And, and one of the things I immediately picked up is that you used the word omniscience, but then in that same uh, breath you were talking about God growing and gaining in knowledge yeah and so i i'm just I, i'm curious to you how how do you take this is god merely gaining knowledge of the future or is god gaining knowledge of the past and the and the present i mean how far do you you take this god gaining knowledge uh so first about semantics so w- what the word omniscience means there's different ways to take omniscience omniscience could be if you're dealing with an ancient semitic religion and there's an all-knowing god and that god knows things through sight you, you could call it an omniscient god even though the omniscience doesn't function as uh the theologians claim so a god who gains most all knowledge on earth through visual means not necessarily knows everything 
that word can apply to that situation. Uh, it doesn't have to for the sake of this conversation. Most open theists uh, affirm a dynamic omniscience that God knows all possible truths that are possibly to be known and future truths aren't truths to be known. And so okay. as propositions come into existence, then God gains access to those propositions. And then there's the classical definition of omniscience, which God knows all true propositions and he can't grow in knowledge. He doesn't gain any new propositions on top of his the, his proposition set, as we would say. And so that's yeah. the classical definition of omniscience. So where do you go ahead? I'm sorry. Oh, I would say that the biblical data leads us to believe that uh, omniscience is not inherent in God, that God, it's it's not identical with him. Uh, most of the passages in the Bible that talk about how God knows th things, it's God sitting in heaven and he watches the ways of man. Or God goes to, in, in uh, the case of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, he goes to find out events about the past. And so there's models of omniscience that support this as well. There's actually an interesting open theist book that just came out that's called uh, God's Presence in the or it's God, God's Absence in the Charismatic Presence, which argues that God is so this it's a philosophical argument that God is so repulsed by sin that his presence and his knowledge of uh, places withdraws as they become more sinful because he's holy and he's repelled by that. that that's a philosophical take. I'm not saying I take that position, but that yeah. is it is a model that's out there in the acceptable models of omniscience that open theists ascribe to. So I I'm, again, I I'm, I'm just wanted some clarity here because you gave and I appreciate that you gave a lot there. Um, it, it sounds like, especially with the Sodom and Gomorrah example, it sounds like you're taking a more radical position of simply saying that God doesn't know the future. But but it, it sounds like you're taking that Sodom and Gomorrah incident uh, pretty literally where God actually has to physically show mm. up to a location in a physical body and to find out if they've been committing uh, previous sins. So. So is that what you're saying, that there are certain things even about the past that God doesn't know, and he has to go investigate kind of like a, a historian and kind of figure out, well, if they're doing these sins now, they probably have been doing these sins in the past, which I've been getting reports by people praying or, or whatever. I mean, is that... Am I caricaturing the position, or is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, sort of. I wouldn't say that God has to investigate in a body. That would be a presupposition on the text. I'm just saying we have this incident in which God doesn't know uh, in detail. He knows generally what's happened in the past. And there's Jewish scholarship uh, who say that God has omniscience in a general sense and not a specific sense. And so he goes and verifies what he already knows through either angels or he visits himself. Not necessarily that he had to use that methodology in order to gain that knowledge, but we do have that data point in the Bible, which he is trying to gather knowledge about the past and, and however that works out. Yeah, I mean, I, I will commend you that that is radically consistent. Um, that I, I'm, yeah, that, I mean, I will commend you on that. That you are you are taking these uh, scriptures pretty much at uh, at face value to the point where you're saying that God has to investigate past uh, past events. I'm mean, I'm curious then when it comes to the incident with uh, God and Adam, when when God says, "Did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil?" or when He's saying, "Where are you, Adam?" Are, are you su 
suggesting that uh, God did not actually know whether Adam had eaten of the tree or he didn't actually know where Adam was when he said those things? Uh, that's one possibility. And so when language is flexible and narratives don't necessarily describe all possibilities that explain those narratives. When God's talking to Adam, it could be something like a known answer question. It could be that it's, it's one possibility. God knows the answer. God knows I, I know where you've been. Now I'm asking you in order to find out if you're going to fess up. Like if I ask my kids, did you clean your room? And I know they didn't clean their room. My purpose in asking that known answer question is to see if they respond truthfully or not. It could be that. Yeah. It could also be divine nescience. He might not know where they are. Uh, he could just be... Uh, uh, it, uh, my kids, uh, my I went over this passage with my kids, and you know there there's there's some reversals of fortunes going on. He says, "The day you eat of it, you shall die," and that doesn't happen. You know, so you could take that. Well, did God uh, not know this was going to happen and show divine mercy? Was he lying? Was this a spiritual death? There's there's different ways to take that, and that's one of one of the various options for it. I, I would say that it's not necessarily divine nescience. It's probably the known answer question. Okay. So what you would say, though, that you're not, at least in this incident, your incident, uh, you're not taking necessarily the face value. You're, you're kind of ex explaining it uh, through some other means of, of explanation. And, and so at least in this case, you wouldn't just take the, the plain, what the so-called plain literal meaning of the text. And so if that's the case here, it doesn't then... really claim in Genesis three that uh, it, it doesn't give commentary of whether or not God actually knows where Adam was at this time when he's asking this. Like, for example, also... like, for example, yeah. in Job, when the Satan, the adversary approaches God and he says, uh, where have you been? And the Satan says, oh, going to and throw, you know, he said, I'm, I've been traveling around. It's not sure we're we're not sure what's going on there. Is that a legitimately a, a question to gain knowledge of what uh, the adversary has been doing, or is this some sort of rhetorical strategy to get uh, yeah. the Satan to admit to something? The text is not explicit, and so when when texts aren't explicit, you, you have to look at the range of possible possible interpretations for those texts. And uh, and rate them by what probability of of the yeah. interpretation there is. No, I, I definitely would would agree with you, but I would just take the the those principles that you're uh, you're using there, and I would apply it to some of the other scriptures, such as Genesis six, and and some uh, well, that would be a famous example. Or again, with the case of of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I think I would imagine I'm not too familiar with the open theist, but I I would imagine that many open theists also would agree with me on at least with uh, God showing up to uh, Sodom and trying to investigate and figure out if these things are the case, I think most people would say this is not, uh, this shouldn't be taking uh, literal, but this is a rhetorical device uh, describing God and, and trying to communicate something to us in human terms of an anthropomorphism as we, we can think of it, or even an anthropopathism. So I, I'm agreeing with, I like your, your, your ability to understand uh, rhetoric and, and, and language and possible meanings, but I would just say then, why can't we apply uh, that same criteria to these scriptures and at least say, well, this other classical interpretation or, or interpretation that is compatible with a classical view of omniscient is also possible, and we need to synthesize all the data to figure out which ones 
like. I, I think because in Genesis 18, you have data points that are not present in Genesis 3. If Genesis 3 said, I don't know where you are, Adam, and I'm trying to figure that out, uh, then you'd have to default with uh, divine nescience, that God just doesn't know where Adam is. So, But that's not t- present in uh, Genesis 3. But we do find it present in Genesis 18. I got it pulled up. We'll switch to the ESV because I like the ESV for, for the Old Testament. And he says, this is the Lord talking, and he's talking either to himself or he's talking to angels. And he says, because the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so it reads pretty explicitly like the purpose of this fact-finding mission is to figure out if the rumors which have come to him, and this is a very common concept in, in Semitic religions where you have a divine council and the angels hear our prayers and they bring our prayers to God. And so you'll have, find texts like in Exodus in which the, uh, the cries of the Israelite slaves it, it reaches God. In, in uh, Jonah, it says that the cries uh, of Nineveh's oppressions, they reach God. And it's, it's this idea that there's communication that's being filtered to God, and then God acts on that uh, information that's been brought to him, maybe by an angelic messenger. And so he has to verify things that happened in the past. Some open theists say, well, he's going to verify if they're going to continue like this in the future. He's going to give them another chance, which possibly could be an interpretation, but it's it's not that it seems fairly explicit like this is a verification of past events yeah i mean well i would say that well we certainly i certainly agree that the language is being applied is treating the lord as simple basically as a a human being who would have to go down and and physically verify information but to me uh, this is just uh, very difficult if not impossible to maybe impossible too strong but very improbable to apply this literally to god because as you pointed out okay let's say god doesn't uh, somehow doesn't uh, isn't everywhere and doesn't even know everything that happened in the past or in the present. Well, certainly he could send his angels to to go down there and and to to find it out. Or it, somehow he got this report in the first place. I mean, are we really going to believe that he actually needs to physically show up to locations, figure out if people are are doing something? I mean, even the book of of Revelation and Daniel describes that uh, there are these books, that everything we've done has been recorded in these books, and one day we'll be judged based on what's in those books. And then Jesus says, every idle word that you speak, you will give an account. Well, well, how does Jesus know every, well, God, know all, every idle word that we have spoken, if not it's in the book? So these books are, are being recorded. So why does God have to physically show up to a location and investigate when he has these angels who are who are seeing and recording everything that we do, if that's not even a picture itself of, of God's omniscience. So I'm just saying that it, it just seems that this is beyond uh, just God not knowing the future. Now we have God uh, extremely limited, where, where he actually needs to physically show up to locations and investigate whether things are happening, and we don't find this anywhere else in the Bible. I mean, where else do we have God having to show up and, and, and write things down to figure out, well, really, Milk. were these people... Malachi 3. Okay, so Malachi 3 is is famous for people using it for an immutability proof text, but they tend to stop there and not read the end 
a couple verses. What's going on in Malachi 3 is you have a group of righteous people, and the righteous people are worried that when God comes back and he judges the world and he judges the wicked, that he will accidentally judge them as well. They, their righteousness will not register with God. They, they do not believe, they do not believe these, these righteous individuals who are God-fearers, they do not believe that God has omniscience of the past. And so what God does to subvert their fears is he writes a divine book with their names in it, such that when he comes back and judges uh, Israel or uh, judges these people, he doesn't accidentally judge them as well. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I don't, I'm, I'm familiar with this passage. I don't think that that's actually what's going on. I think even if you look at uh, verse 14, there are people who are, who said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking in the morning before the Lord? Saying this is pointless. Like, what's the reason to serve God? Here I am serving God, and and I'm better off than the guy who's not serving God. You, you know, and vice versa. There seems to be no profit at all. Is all completely uh, vain. And they and they even verse fifteen. And now we call the arrogant blessed and evildoers not only prosper but they put God to the test and they escape. So we clearly see on earth now, judgment is not meaning out. This is pointless. And then verse 16 says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So these people are saying it's vain, but believers are speaking with one another. And it says the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared and esteemed his so name. What's the purpose of the book? What function does the yeah, book alleviate fears? How, how does this book function? Well, one, we're not even sure if, if the people, and I, I would say probably not, that this is something that's happening in, in heaven. So no one knows of this until Malachi is writing this down and, and informing us. But the idea is that God is putting this, this book of remembrance. And so even though these people will pass off the scene, and that's what they're saying in, in Matthew, uh, Malachi 3.15, nothing's happening here on earth right now. And so the whole point of the book of remembrance is that this these people are going to be remembered, and one day the fortunes will be uh, restored and 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 changed, right? And that's going to happen at um, at the resurrection and at the final judgment. So, no, I wouldn't take this. I don't. I'm not sure if you would take this. I mean, I'll ask you. Do you think that an actual physical book was being written down and people's names were being uh, having to be actually written down so that God wouldn't forget when He's resurrecting all people that oh, these are the good guys and 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 these are the bad guys. Oh, book has a wide uh, semantic range. It could be just a record. God's creating a record of those individuals. Uh, maybe some divine record, maybe some divine scroll. It doesn't have to be physical, but it seems to be that these people, they're fearing the Lord and they come together and they're, they're talking about one another. And it says the Lord paid attention. Oh, he hears them. Then a book of remembrance was written before him of those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. So it looks like this book is in reaction. It's it's reacting to these people's, um, their their murmur, their conversation, and it's doing something yeah. to alleviate their possible fears. That, that seems to be the function of the yeah, book. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess, I mean, I, I don't really see, again, I don't really see them uh, knowing this. I think the function of this passage in, in the scriptures is to answer the charge of 15, namely that, all things are it's pointless to serve God and saying, no, it's not. And in fact, those who don't have that attitude, namely those who fear the Lord, right? Those believers who who speak to each other, that's all of us, right? Who who say, no, no, these people are not telling the truth. There will be one day God's recompense coming. It's those people that God is telling us in this passage through anthropomathism and just human language. Hey, these people are being recorded. God hears what you're saying. And, and they will be remembered when 
uh, when, when that second coming happens. But again, I, I would say, I mean, this passage is only, again, suggesting what I'm saying about, about the Sodom and Gomorrah incident. It doesn't say he has to show up and physically hear what they're saying. He's already there. He already can hear, and he's already uh, recording uh, what these people are saying and write, writing their names down. So, so I just so, wanted to take over the literal. That seems to spiritualize what what appears to me to be historical narrative. There's 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 different genres in the Bible. I'll grant you. Uh, it seems like Genesis 18 and Malachi, uh, the end part of Malachi 3, it, they they tend to seem more historical to me. These are events that actually happened rather than symbolic events. Do you do you um, do you think that this conversation and in uh, Genesis 18 actually happened between God and himself or God and the angels about going to verify Sodom and Gomorrah? Or is that language for our benefit? If it is for our benefit, what does it mean? What kind of benefit do we gain from that language? Yeah, so I'd have to look back at that that uh, Genesis 18 uh, passage in, in detail um, to, to know if there's evidence that God, I mean, is it, it does it say in that, and I don't remember offhand, is he saying that to Abraham? It was this, who's speaking? Is it God speaking? Uh, is it just kind of being narrated? Uh, what's going on there? But um, w- regardless, whether or not uh, God is actually saying this to Abraham or whether the narrator is is recording this, I, I think the idea is that God is, is, is verifying and confirming just like a, a regional a Lord would that the Sodomites are in fact wicked. Yes, he is. Uh, he knows that they are wicked, and the judgment comes down upon them. So that's the general picture of God being uh, viewed as as a sovereign Lord who makes sure that he has all the facts before he enacts his judgment, which is good, right? I mean, the worst thing we would we would want is a a sovereign Lord who just acts rashly. Oh, I hear, I heard reports that these people are being wicked, so I just went and wiped them out. Well, what if you find out that they weren't actually as wicked as you uh, knew? And so that that's being distanced from God, and God's being uh, a picture in, in this anthropomorphic uh, way, but so so I, I what would, kind of truths? Do, like for example, idioms, idioms, metaphors, figures of speech, they communicate some sort of information. We're 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 able to make this parallel and derive benefit from it. So in in what way uh, is uh, God going to verify to see if the reports are true? And what and how does that line up with reality? At, such that we can get something from that, J- just yeah, so, just in the sense of his sovereignty. Yeah, I, w- I would say the the main thing that if and this passage correctly, I would say the thing that we we see from this uh, from this illustration is number one, God's not afraid to use uh, human language uh, to himself, and I think that uh, this is extremely helpful. Not only is God not afraid to use human language uh, applied to himself, but he's also not afraid to take on a physical body. And enact these things out in in reality, and that's extremely helpful because Jews and Muslims say God would never do that. He's completely so above uh, all of this that he would never ever uh, you know apply human language to himself, and he would never come down as man. He's too high and above uh, humanity for that. And and this is why the incarnation is impossible for them. But here we have in the book of Genesis, God saying, "I'm not afraid to use human language. I'm not afraid to relate to you humans, as you can understand." Uh, and, and human terminology, and so so I would say that this is this is wonderful preparation of the people of God for the incarnation. But but the main uh, theological uh, significance of this, I don't think, is to communicate that God is ignorant of the past 
or that God actually physically needs to show up to locations to find out information. I think the main the main point is that God is a sovereign Lord who uh, functions in a way analogous to a, a Lord finding out information, confirming, and then uh, bringing judgment. And I'll give you another uh, another interesting example in the book of Genesis is the Tower of Babel. They're creating this Tower of Babel that's supposed to be high in the heavens, and the Lord comes down to see the tower. I mean, the Lord actually shows up to see the tower, and this is uh, this is this is very funny in, in many respects. They're building a tower into the heaven, and the Lord from heaven can't see it. Are we going to say he literally cannot see the, the tower? Of course not. Uh, he, he can see things way beneath the tower, right? If he can't see a uh, tower link, he can't see very much at all. He's, he's more than just ignorant. He's half blind in, in, in some respects, right? But the idea is, is just playing off this uh, terminology is that this thing's supposed to be so high, but the Lord has to actually come down to see this puny thing. So it's, it's, it's punny. It's, it's funny uh, that's supposed to be uh, being communicated here. But the main thing I would say is this is preparing the people of God for the incarnation, saying God is not afraid to communicate himself in, in human language, and he's especially not afraid to actually one day incarnate himself as a person. So uh, one thing about the Tower or a Babel incident, uh, yeah, language could work like that. It, it could be it could be a, a punny like that. It could be communicating those truths. It al also could be literal. That that's something we we can't necessarily rule out. I don't think there's anything in the text that forcibly rules out that interpretation. And so when when dealing with the Bible or any text, it would be a mistake to try to read our own theology onto the text rather than to look for textual clues as to if if the text is to be taken literally, if it's supposed to be taken idiomatically. Um, so here, here's a question to you. How, how could Genesis 18 be written in such a way that it would communicate to you that God is verifying things about the past? Well, I mean, I would say, again, I'm, I'm not afraid to uh, admit that taken at face value, taking, um, if, if you read the Bible as if you uh, never... I knew any theology, never knew anything about God. You would, I would, I would agree with you that this would. But I'd also think that God is a semi-Superman-like uh, being, and and I'd also, you know, I, let me ask you this: Do you think that God has a physical body and physical arms and legs and uh, walks around? Would you take, you know, essentially like a Mormon view? And I, I'm not caricature. I'm, I'm really want to know this because um, I'm, I'm not sure. Would you would you hold to that God has a as a physical uh, body like humanity? Uh, so Benjamin Summer, he's, he's a Jewish scholar, and he writes about divine fragmentation. It's not that God has a body. God has multiple diverse bodies in sundry locations at the same time. God, God has bodily fluidity. That's more of a semi-category than discrete bodies. Discrete bodies is more of a Greco-Roman <laughs> concept. And so, yeah, you see Yahweh actually interact in the Genesis 18 text. And Benjamin Summer points out, we don't know whether one, two, or three of these beings in Genesis 18 is Yahweh. Uh, angels and Yahweh are regularly, uh, the same term is used. Who does Jacob wrestle with? Does he wrestle with an angel or does he wrestle with Yahweh? Angel is a category that includes Yahweh. He's, he's of that class. And so I think God has multiple bodies, not that he necessarily has to have a body and not necessarily that that body has to be physical. You see um, more of like an energy body in some passages in which God uh, sits on top of Mount Sinai and uh, burns the top of it with some sort of energy body. And then Moses, there's an interesting passage where Moses asks to see God's face and uh, it, it reads historical to me. It reads like it's trying to be serious, 
where um, he says, no one can see my face and live. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do this thing where I cover you with my hand and then I pass by and then you can see my backside. And it's, it's a very strange text. Um, I think it's, it's, it's best understood through those Semitic categories where God can have diverse bodies of diverse substances if God so wants. Yeah. I, well, I, a couple of things you said that, that piqued my interest. Um, one, you said that angels were in the same class of being as, as God. I, I want to get a little clarity on that. Are you, are you affirming polytheism? Are you affirming that, uh, are you, are we denying that God has a sanity? God is the creator creature distinction. God is uh, the creator of all things. And he's a, a, he's unique in that sense, or is God one of many spiritual beings? Maybe he's the most powerful, but he's one of many spiritual beings that are, have some kind of, you know, uh, of the same race, of the same class as you use the language, kind of like multiple different human beings or multiple different kinds of animals, right? They can be different classes of animals, one uh, canine and, and so forth. And, and, and a dog and a feline and all that. But how are you? How would you explain uh, kind of that comment? Uh, so, uh, for example, when when Saul uh, Saul calls up uh, El- Elijah from the medium, and the medium sees uh, Samuel coming up, and she says, "There, look, there's an Elohim." And so Sa- Samuel's described as an Elohim when he's in in ghost form. The Elohim, uh, the angels are referred to as Elohim. The Elohim seems to be a class of beings which are divine, which God fits in that category, although he's species unique, as Michael Heiser would say. Uh, it's not that he's, he's, he's in the divine realm, but there, there's no creature like him, but it's still a category that he fits into. So I'm not I'm not claiming polytheism or anything like that. I'm not saying there's multiple gods. There there's multiple beings that we can call gods. There's the demons that Paul says that uh, the pagans they they sacrifice to demons. There's there's the gods of Egypt that that Yahweh punishes when he inflicts the pay yeah. the the inflicts the plagues on Egypt. So there's other divine beings that we see in the Bible that sometimes there's a war going on and uh, you know. Uh, who was it? Uh, Ezekiel's praying and an angel appears to him and says, oh, uh, I was delayed because I was in war against the prince of Syria, which is uh, some sort of divine uh, adversary to the God's God's soldiers, God's angels. Yeah, so I don't have any problem with um, understanding that there are angelic beings out there and that there are bad angel beings or there's multiple spiritual beings, right, that um, that even us, when we die and we're in the intermediate state, we're spiritual beings, just like uh, similar to angels and demons and all of, all of that. Um, I, I guess I'm just trying to get uh, clarity. Is well, let me just ask you this: Is is God the self-existent necessary being that is the creator of all things? Well, a lot of those are Platonic categories that I would categorically reject. I, th- I think. That, that those are not Semitic concepts, and they're they're only concepts if you care about Platonistic categories of being. I don't, I don't think they're necessary. Okay, but but still, I mean, even if we take those as Platonic conceptions, they're still conceptions, right? And so, um, I'm just trying to again, just God would be God. eternally existing from everlasting to everlasting is how the Bible describes it. Yeah, that doesn't mean eternally simple or. Or any of those categories, it just means he he's always well, that, existed. That is necessary. Yeah, well, that means he's a necessary being, right? That has a sanity. Not that necessarily. Has existence in 
So let's. How, how would you? So let, let's uh, theoretically, I don't think uh, suicide would be rejected necessarily by Jewish categories like God, if he wanted to. Uh, and they they would teach that God would never want to commit suicide or anything like that. I don't think that they would say God could not, if he wanted to blink himself out of existence. I don't think that's Jewish thought. I think those are platonic categories where God is this being. And this being has to have this property of necessary existence. And God, even if he wanted to, even if he's, 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 he's got all power, right? He could do anything. He can't commit suicide. I, I, would, I would say that categorically, that's, that's, that's a Platonistic category. And it's not necessarily necessary in Semitic religion. Yeah, yeah I, I guess when I'm, and that goes into omnipotence and doing all things uh, logically possible, and is it logically possible for a necessary being to kill himself? No, uh, so so God can't necessarily uh, kill himself. Uh, and really, we're getting into the secret things. I, again, I'm just I'm yeah. I'm really just trying to uh, just make sure that we are still affirming. Uh, you talk about uh, Jewish categories. The Jews certainly uh, believed, even that passage that you quoted about that they worship uh, demons. It says that they worship uh, so-called gods who who are no gods. He explicitly says these are yeah. no gods. They are nothing. What they're worshiping are demons. So he's using, and Elohim is translated into the Greek as theos, and that's theos right there. So, and Paul's familiar with the LXX, and he's familiar with uh, the, the translation of Elohim as God, which is theos, which is applied to the one true God in the New Testament. And there he says these are no theos. Neither right, no but, Elohim. So, but they are demons, right? So they're they're not they're not certainly. nothing. He was being a little bit. He's trying to communicate to us that. They, they don't have ultimate power. They're not going to ultimately win out against God. They're wasting their time by sacrificing to these lesser beings. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to, and we are, you do ha- affirm monotheism, that yeah. there is only one supreme being that's always existed and he created everything else. Right. Is, yeah. Is that, you're just using divine to really be synonymous with spiritual. Yeah, you could say that. Like, uh, who does Jacob uh, wrestle with? Uh, The text verbally describes Jacob's wrestling partner as an angel and also Yahweh. And it it makes sense if uh, Yahweh is part of the category of uh, angel. Definitely. Most uh, uh, Orthodox would would take that as the angel of the Lord is the Christophany. And, And so here, angel at its root meaning just means messenger. So certainly... Right, uh, so, and, and that, but a Christophany is God, right? Yeah, certainly. But I'm saying that he's the angel of the Lord, as in he's the messenger of the Lord, who himself is God, which is just like the second person of the Trinity is the son of God, who himself also is God. But but anyways, I, I'm just, I, I just caught me off guard there a little bit, and I'm just trying yeah. to uh, make sure that we're, we at least had the common ground of monotheism. And, and this is kind of my critique of uh, Michael Heiser, which you quoted as, uh, even the New Testament, I don't have those passages off the top of my head, but it talks about the divine nature or the divine being, and it, it describes that as as referring to God. And so when uh, Heiser or, or when you uh, basically use the word divine to be actually synonymous with spiritual, I just think that for most people, this isn't overly helpful. We've all, we all understand that there are spiritual beings, but we use divine to be referring to the divine nature, which even the, the, the New Testament describes the divine nature is God. So we're, we're using divine in continuity, not with some 
external reality, but even the New Testament as a synonym or description of God alone. And that's why when we say many divine beings or, or God is part of a class, he's, he's part of a class as in he's part of a spiritual, he, he's a spiritual being related to other spiritual beings, but we want to always keep that creator-creature distinction. Yeah, I can see I, what I'm, you're saying there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but no, I want to get back to your 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 question about um, the Tower the Tower of Babel, Genesis, and all of that. Uh, you're right that this is historical uh, narrative, but I would say it, it's not true that in historical narrative we can't have figures of speech and and non uh, non literal language infused into uh, multiple genres. Just like it's not true that if you have a parabolic uh, parabolic genre or a um, poetic genre that you can't have literal things. Like I can have a, a poem that says, you know, I, I, I ran across the street and, and jumped yeah. up, 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 and down. Well, that doesn't mean the jumping is not literal because this is a, uh, you know, a poetic uh, structure there. So I, I wouldn't say that just because the, the overall text is a historical means that there is no uh, non-literal language uh, uh, being applied. That's that, the first thing. The second thing, oh. go ahead. Uh, I said, yeah, that, that is true. And so what you have to do with those situations, if you have to look for if it's an idiom, a figure of speech, what kind of meaning is it giving the audience? And number two, is it part of the narrative structure? Does does the narrative make sense without that that linchpin? If, if you pull that out, um, is it a major plot point in the narrative that the narrative cannot function without? So I'd, I'd say that would be kind of our test to try to figure out if speech is idiomatic or if it's uh, to be taken literally. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. And, and I would just say some of these things, um, I, I do believe that God actually physically, and I, well, let me say something about this though. I, I do want other one point of clarity. Uh, when you do would agree with Jesus when he said that God is spirit, right? Or God is a spirit. Yeah. Would you, he's fundamentally uh, a spirit, but he can take on a physical body. So he can he can show up in different forms and 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 you know presumably cast off the forms when he's done with them. But God Himself is a spirit, just like well, angels do the same. Well, yeah. Uh, there, Paul talks about us getting spiritual bodies. Uh, the the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters in uh, Genesis. So what two? Uh, so spirits don't necessarily not have form. That that would be that would be a Platonic category mistake, I would say. Um, so we we need to kind of figure out what type of spirit God is. Yes, certainly. Okay. Yeah, I, I, no, no problem. I'm just, I was just really trying to uh, establish the point that when the, the scriptures describe God with a physical body, that uh, this is anthropomorph anthropomorphic language and that we shouldn't actually conclude. Not always. Uh, in Genesis always. 18, he not, eats, right? Absolutely. Not always, right? The incarnation would be a supreme example of this. Yeah. So certainly God can show, I'm not, I'm not denying, I don't think anyone denies that God can show up in a physical body. But Some sometimes, the, well, I hope, yeah. But but sometimes the, the language that describing God doesn't seem to be describing God when he shows up on on the earth with a physical body, but be describing God as he sits in heaven with nostrils, with nose, with eyelids, and all of these things. And, and this is uh, clearly uh, figurative language, and we're not supposed to believe that there are spiritual eyelids. That doesn't seem to be uh, the intent. Are, would you say that, we are supposed to conclude that there are spiritual nostrils and noses and well the daniel the daniel incident seems to be more of a vision uh but the isaiah incident seems to be like a physical transportation into the spiritual realm and so uh, we'd we'd have to take those 
narratives and uh, evaluate them one at a time to figure out what's going on there, what, what's, what's the author trying to get at for the situation. And certainly God can hold court. We see God holding court in not only in Job, but also in 1 Kings 22 in the Ahab incident. Uh, there, there sometimes are these divine counsels going on. You would agree with that, right? Yeah, I don't have I don't have any problem with divine counsels. I don't have any problem with the fact that the the, the Bible consistently communicates heaven in in a, a human language so that we can understand a court and God uh, having court and 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 I have I honestly I have no idea of, of what it's going to look like when when I get there. But I'm just saying that the, these descriptions that we find in the Bible seem to be more about helping me to understand what's going on than I'm actually supposed to be like, okay, there's the literal throne and, and there's the literal nostril and eyelid and here's the literal robe or uh, all of those things. I just I, I wouldn't say that we're supposed to press those details. And, and that's not the point of the passage is to say, oh, look, there are sandals in heaven. I, mean, I, I just don't think that that's the point of Isaiah. The point of Isaiah is that God is high and lifted up and he is a king. And he, he's a kingly uh, figure, which we can understand by understanding kingship. Yeah, I could hear it. So what, what is your take on uh, eschatology? Are, are we going to get a renewed earth? Are we going to live on the renewed earth with God uh, as it writes in Revelation, Revelation 21? Yeah, I, w- I would. Yeah, I would affirm that. I would affirm that. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I would affirm. You know, real quick, I want I to answer that <laughs> old question that you said a while ago about um about th- this language of, of the Tower of Babylon I'm real quick, and then we can go. Into oh, this yeah, argument. yeah, that's fine. No, no problem. Um, the, the thing is, again, I would affirm that sometimes Genesis 6 is a different. Genesis 6 is a metaphoric language, and we can talk about that if you want. But Genesis 11, I think that very likely uh, God did actually uh, sh- show up um, in, into doing this. But, but again, I think that that's uh, showing us that God is not afraid to uh, relate to us in, in human-like ways so that we can understand. So I, I especially with the Sodom and Gomorrah incident, I'm certain that God actually did physically show up and and, and look around and 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 walk around and, and that kind of thing. Um, but but that really is just showing us that God is, and really we see this from Genesis 1 and in, in Genesis 2, where God creates the world in, in seven days. He doesn't need to do that. And Augustine wrestled like, this is crazy. God could have created everything instantaneously. And he was wrestling with that issue and we we, it, we don't have to speculate of, of why uh, Moses created that that structure. He tells us in Exodus that just as God worked six uh, days, so you are to work six days, and just as God rests, you are to rest. So I, I'm seeing uh, Christological ramifications of all this from the very beginning, that God's saying, I'm going to act in such a way that you can imitate me, you can relate to me, you can understand me, that ultimately is uh, perfectly manifested in the Incarnation. So uh, can can I direct you? Uh, this this is my this is my number one proof text in open theism uh, is yeah. Exodus thirty two, um, and so we we've been focusing so far on the conversation about present knowledge, uh, divine niescence that there there might be present truths that God might not know, um, but Exodus thirty two I think is more of a, a, a indication that God doesn't know the future. God could have legitimate changes of mind. God okay. responds to prayer, and God has emotional reactions sometimes to events that happen on earth. I don't know what your take is on uh, divine emotions. Uh, traditional Calvinism has impassibility as a value. I don't know if you affirm that. I mean, there's different understandings of impassibility. I would say that God uh, certainly has 
he has emotions of love and, and mercy and, and wrath and, and all of those uh, things. Uh, they're not exactly like uh, human emotions. And they're certainly not sinful in any way or out of control. But but I have no problem saying that God uh, God communicates to us that He loves, and uh, at least and in, in there's an analogy to God's love and our loves, such as that He applies this to Himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I could respect that. Exodus thirty two seven, the Lord says to Moses, "Go down for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves." The narrative element is, is God saying, "These are your people." Moses. And this is going to be reversed later on in the narrative where Moses brings it back to God and says, this is actually your people. Uh, This is the God still speaking. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, sacrificed to it, and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who you brought out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, a stiff-necked. Therefore, let me alone in my wrath that I may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make of you a great nation. And so was was God being serious when he said this? Was this a legitimate uh, plan of God's? Um, I, w- I would say that God was legitimately angry and, and that God um, was, yeah, I was would, I would communicate this is, this is communicating uh, God's extreme wrath. And, and that is likened to him about to absolutely exterminate these uh, these people, and then he he's saying that you know he's going to make a great nation of of Moses, and that's a hypothetical, but it's a contrary to reality, and this is not actually God's plan. And, and the main point of this again is the main. This is really showing. This is incredible that this is in the Old Testament uh, because this is really showing how much God is willing to to lower Himself, and so we really shouldn't be surprised that God was also willing to humble himself and take on the form of a bondservant if he's willing to uh, communicate himself like this, where uh, this language literally is not applicable to God, but he's willing to, uh, I don't want to say play the part, but willing to communicate in such a way as if he is this uh, out-of-control, angry uh, deity who's about to uh, just strike out on the people. And then here's Moses. I mean, look at this. Here's Moses employing God saying, calm down, God. Uh, Don't do this. Have mercy. And then God's like, oh, you're right, Moses. Uh, I should have I should have mercy. Uh, to me, taken literally, this draws serious questions about the character of God and, and the fact that God is uh, seemingly uh, untrustworthy, uh, temper tantrum. You, you, you know that oh he oh he's over here said he's made these promises to Abraham. He's made these promises to Judah, saying that there will be a scepter from Judah. Is he a liar? I mean, he said that out of Judah was going to. Uh, uh, come the ruler, but if he kills everyone, Moses isn't from the tribe of Judah. So now all of a sudden he has to go back on his promises. And now, you know, in, in Hebrews, it says that God cannot lie and he swore an oath. And so now all of a sudden, well, we don't know if that's true because here God wanted to lie, but thank God that Moses was uh, more patient than God. See, I think you come to all kinds of problems in this text. If you think that the, the main point of the text is, is to t- say that God is emotional and uh, irrational and, uh, you know, uh, needs to be calmed down by humans. But but rather, I think that the reason why God is accommodating himself in, in such a way is to show that there's this uh, appointed prophet, there's this appointed person, Moses, who is a man who God sets a scene up so that he will allow this man to intercede on the behalf of wicked people where God's wrath wants to come down on them, right? And, and that he will allow a human being to stand in the way to be a mediator in a uh, relieve his wrath and, and send his wrath somewhere else. And that's wonderfully pictured in 
Jesus Christ, where it says that we have one God and one mediator between a man and God, the man Jesus Christ. This is ultimately pointing to the man Jesus, who is going to do that very thing and going to stand in the way between God's wrath and us. And he's going to alleviate that wrath so that we can have forgiveness. So I see, once again, I see a beautiful uh, picture of uh, of Christ and, and the mercy of God and, and God willing to condescend down to uh, this 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 level to communicate this beautiful truth. But we shouldn't take this literally to make God uh, all of those negative things I just said. Well, was, did uh, Moses, did he believe that God had this wrath and that God was actually going to do this, kill the people? I would say more or less, yeah. I, I would say that, I mean, Moses is, is living this out and, and God is saying that he wants to uh, destroy them and, and Moses in, in his heart is like, this is no, Lord, don't do this. Uh, you know, don't burn your wrath against these people. Uh, don't don't dishonor your your name in this way. So yes, Moses is is uh, responding to 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 God, but I'm saying that this is all recorded, and God knows that Moses is going to do this. It's not like I, I and I wonder what you would say. Uh, will we actually say that God is like, oh man, Moses got in my way? Like, why did I have that conversation with Moses? If only, or he, God was like, I don't know why I was so mad. I'm it, so it, glad Moses there to calm me down. It, it definitely could be an invitation, like in the Sodom and Gomorrah incident, where he said, let's go talk to Abraham, um, because he I know he's going to be a great nation, and to see what his input is on Sodom and Gomorrah, it definitely could be something like that. Well, why would he say, go away, let me burn my wrath? Maybe he's inviting a response. That is a textual possibility. Moses, to me, doesn't seem like he's a Calvinist. He's, he seems to me like he's open theist. He thinks that uh, God has told him his plans, and Moses can change God's plans through intercession. And so it, it, it reads to me that uh, Moses' direct response to God, it's not, oh, God, you know the future, and so tell me how this plays out. Uh, your wisdom trumps all. Uh, my input's nothing compared to your omniscience of all events. Instead, he, he seems to break out into a multi-tiered argument why God should not destroy his people. He thinks that he could reason with God. Uh, he thinks that he could give arguments that God is going to respond to. That seems to be Moses's default response. He seems to be responding in such a way where he, he's having a rational dialogue with God in order to convince God to do something. Yeah, I, I have no problem. And again, I would say, this is why I began with saying, I, I don't think just because uh, we think that we can have conversations with God and that we can make rational arguments with God and, and think that he, he will respond to us, that leads us to, to open open theism. I mean, we are human beings who are tense beings who live in the present, and the past is gone, and the future is potential. And God communicates us uh, in such a way that he says, I will respond to your your prayers, and I respond to the things that, that you do. So, so I, I really any attention with the fact that God hears us and responds to us and, and enters into a relationship with us, and at the same time that God is beyond space and time and in some unfathomable way that, that we have no access to. All we know is that God is beyond space and time, but he's also in time dealing with us in time and invites us to uh, partake and participate in the things that he's accomplishing now. And so exactly how all this works, I don't know, but I am certain that the things that we do actually so I, I, I'm, what I'm saying is I, I think that nobody and no one should live in a fatalistic uh, a fatalistic perspective. And, and I always give the analogy of uh, w one day soon we're, we're probably going to watch this video. At least I'm going to watch this video. Yeah. Right. And, and, and when I watch this video, that everything will be fixed and I can't change it. 
But that doesn't mean now I'm already, I know everything is active and I'm, and I'm free and I'm moving next. And so what I'm saying is something can be uh, both fixed and, and free. And so that's how the future, uh, in my mind, is that God uh, sees the future and understands the future, kind of like we look at uh, video recordings of the past. We, he sees them uh, free, but they're still fixed. And so it's the same way is I don't see that God's uh, knowledge of the future is necessarily causative. That just because God knows the future doesn't mean that, the, the fr that our free decisions uh, don't affect the future, and especially realizing that God is a character in the future. Like God isn't just merely timeless. God's also a character in the future or in the present that's making the future. So I'm just saying that I, I think that. No, I, uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you're explaining this in detail. Um, I, I'm going to real quick run through uh, Moses's arguments, and then we'll go to verse 14, and then uh, I'll ask you if if Moses actually convinced God, if Moses was the reason God changed his mind. Uh, the first argument is that uh, that Israel is God's people. Uh, the second argument in verse 12 is that Egyptians, if God were to just kill all of Israel, uh, then the Egyptians would say, hey, this is a death cult God. He just brought all his people in the wilderness and killed them all. This is a bad God. Um, and so it's a PR argument. You will have bad public perception if you go through with this, God. And then last of all, he, he points to the promises, as you did earlier, and uh, in your talking about what would happen if this goes through. Uh, Moses points to the same thing you did, that that would invalidate some previous promises. And then verse 14 sums this up. It's basically, and the Lord relented, which is, uh, you know, a nostril flare. It's it typically used of changing your mind in the Bible, relented of the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So God said he would do something and then he didn't do it. And so the question is, did Moses convince God and, and did which argument, if any, convinced God? Yeah, I mean, I would say that in, in one sense, uh, Moses did did convince God, i.e. that God is willing to uh, play uh, the part of an, an angry sovereign who's been uh, wronged and is, is, is uh, has real anger who's about to destroy his people. And he allows Moses to play the part as a, a cooling mediator who gives reasons and, and, and convinces him uh, to uh, relent his wrath. And so, and, and that, this really did happen. God was really mad. And, and, and Moses really did get arg arguments that really did cause God to relent of the anger that he really did speak against the people. So uh, this all happened. Uh, literally. And, and from a human perspective, this is how everything played down here on the earth. Just like um, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. It wasn't fake wrestling. You talk to Jacob, he didn't say, he was exhausted. His hip was broken, right? He was actually uh, wrestling. Uh, and even sometimes I wrestle with my kids. I'm not fake wrestling. I'm actually wrestling with my kids, but I'm not, I'm not using all my power. I mean, are we really going to believe that, that, that God as you couldn't abide annihilated Jacob. Of course he could have. And, and same thing here, that God, uh, it's not as if, again, this calls into serious question of the intelligence of God and the character of God, and this is to be taken literally. To me, God is playing the role. He's functioning as the role to teach us a, a greater spiritual lesson. So from a from a greater perspective, right, God was not, not uh, it, it was I, uh, you, you broke up there real you know, quick. If, uh, if, if, uh, so repeat okay. that again from a greater perspective, saying, and then you broke up. Yeah, greater perspective that this is not God changing his mind. Uh, but th but this is God, in fact, just, just 
just like inviting Satan to give an answer, or just like uh, you said with, with Adam, inviting Adam, where are you, Adam? Uh, did you eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's not as if God doesn't know these things, but he's inviting Adam to say, yes, I did, and to repent, and Adam fails to test again by not repenting. Well, here, same thing. God, If God really wanted to uh, be alone, he could have just packed his bags up and left and the fire coming down from heaven but he's staying there and waiting and patiently listening to moses arguments and, and and relents and like i said i think the main point of this shocking text for a jew is to say wow god's mediator can really relieve his wrath like god really listens to his mediator and these mediators can uh, can really function as our savior which is, and he's a human. That's amazing because God, of course, came down as a human. So from one sense, yes, God changed his mind. Ultimately, though, God knew this was going to happen and he wanted uh, th this conversation to happen. So that's reading it kind of like this is play acting. Like I'm going to put up this situation just so that Moses fills this role, which can give some maybe inspiration to people. And did the arguments really convince God? Did Moses's arguments change God's mind? Um I think the face value reading the text is yes. And I think this uh, this narrative that you want to impose on it, where God is play acting and God knew all along of these arguments. God had these arguments at the forefront of his mind. He, he always had eternal plans that never were subverted, never changed. And it was just for our sake. I don't think that bears out in the text. I don't think this text indicates it. And the interesting thing about this text is that there are future commentators in the Bible who talk about this text and they they don't seem to take your position they they seem to take my position and so in yeah, Deuter I, I would love to look at those texts but real quick so and i would love to look at those texts it, i wasn't quite saying play acting i'm saying that god is uh enacting this as an as as a, a living parable to communicate uh, some truth and just to give you one example uh it talks about um I think it was Enoch. It says that he walked with the Lord 365 years. Uh, 365 years is the same amount of, of days. To me, we have a poetic God. Same thing with, with Genesis. He's not play acting by creating in six days and resting on one, but but God is is doing this so that it can be imitated. And so the parables and, and Jesus's parables are full of doing enact. He curses a, a fig tree. Is he play acting by cursing the victory? In one sense, he's mad that he, he didn't get his fruit, but in another sense, he's giving a living parable. So I, I wouldn't do so pejorative to say that God is simply play acting. I would say that God is giving this wonderful uh, picture and parable to communicate truth to us. But, but please. Yeah. Uh, so, so Moses wrote Exodus. It seems like Moses legitimately believed that God was angry and God had uh, strong emotions. And in Deuteronomy 9, 19, he recounts this incident. And this is what he writes. He says, for I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was also ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. So th this is a reoccurring event where Moses describes God listened to him. God listened to him and God was ready to do something. God was going to do something, but God listened to him. So furthermore, um, we could switch the psalmist uh, in Psalms. We could go to Psalms 106.23. And it recounts this instant. It's, it's looking back on this instant. And it says there, Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying him. So it, this verse as well reads to me, as if God's wrath is being turned away. God is repenting of something that he legitimately was going to do. Moses changed God's mind is how this is yeah. reading to me. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't see uh, these passages any any different than uh, the, the one we saw in Exodus. I mean, th- again, I'm I'm agreeing with you that this was a historical event that that actually happened in this conversation. God's wrath was real, and Moses' inner against us is real. Possession is real, and and Christ really does alleviate God's wrath. I'm not saying that any of this is not real. But what I, the only thing that I, that I'm saying is is that um, that God is is really shockingly uh, bringing Himself down to to be able to communicate this scene so that we can have it acted. But I, I'm just arguing that. Um, I do not believe that God had forgot these arguments. I mean, again, this to me is more than just open theism about God not knowing the future. This really calls into question God's character, uh, that that God is literally throwing a fit here. I mean, he's literally throwing a fit where a puny human with their puny human mind remembers more of God's promises and more of God's reputation than God himself. I mean, I, I really uh, wonder if this isn't not only challenging um, God's knowledge, but God's character, God's holiness, God's goodness, that he would literally throw a, a tantrum fit where a human being has to cool him down and, 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 and get him to uh, not, not to be a liar. And, yeah, and, and, when, when I'm angry, I might make rash decisions as well. And I, I think the text bears that out, that this is, uh, God is angry and Moses does calm him down and he calls him, calms him down through rational action. The last verse I'd like to turn to that recounts this incident is remember Moses gave three different arguments. He said, these are your people. These are the promises that you gave to them that are going to be violated. And then last of all, if you kill them, uh, your public perception is going to be down the toilet. Everyone will think you're a death cult God. And so in Ezekiel 20, 13, it says, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live and my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. And then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. God's recounting. I said, I would kill them, but I acted for my name's sake that should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. So he's saying the reason that he didn't destroy them was this argument that Moses gave that he would look like a death cult God. He's giving the reason why he changed his mind, why he didn't do what he said he would do according to the text. The the reason is explicit. So it, it appears to me that Ezekiel is looking back on this instance and saying, Moses's arguments legitimately worked. These arguments had an effect on God. Uh, Moses changed God's mind, and it was for a PR reason. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I would agree with you in the sense that these arguments were valid. Moses' arguments were were valid, and we don't just see this in, in this Moses incident. We see this all throughout the Psalms, that, that people are praying to God and using one of this. This argument constantly shows up about uh, the sake of your name and for your glory. And so I think that invites us as Christians to say the same thing. So that, God's, uh, you, God's changing, God God's not doing what he said he would do for his name's sake. Uh, so was God lying when he said he was going to do it? Uh, how does not doing it for his name's sake calculate into him saying it and him further on uh, in all these other scriptures saying that this was his legitimate plan that he was going to do. And then this argument's coming to bear as the reason, the the cause of why God doesn't go through with it. So did this information affect God? 
what I'm saying is that this is this this reason, and not just this reason. I wouldn't say that this text suggests that this is the only reason that God didn't care about being a liar and fulfilling His promises or any of those. No, I think those other reasons are are, are valid as well. Um, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is that those reasons were always valid. God did not forget about those reasons, and God didn't have to be reminded of of, of those reasons. And so again, we we can think about this uh, situation. You said you have six kids, right? Yeah. You have six kids, and and I'm sure that you could get into a situation where you start you start saying things uh, to your kids like, you know, we're not going to go to Disneyland because you didn't clean your room. We're not going to go, and and then you you allow your kids to to wrestle and to work through to <coughs> teach uh, either your other kids something or teach them something, and and you're smart enough to know how the conversation would were, were to go, and so after your kid makes all the right responses and, and brings out all the good reasons you need dad you promised that you you said that you would do it you just you're a man of your word you tell us to be a people of a word how about you be a man of your word and throughout this throughout this conversation eventually you you come around into ultimately taking the kids what you said that you were going to do but imagine that you actually were planning that the whole time and we're really just trying to use this as a teaching lesson as a, a way to communicate something um uh, something to the audience, something to your kids. So I don't see if we could do that as teachers, and, and that can be a powerful teaching lesson. Then I don't see why why God can't do that either. That I, God I, cannot. Uh, in those situations, out. I wouldn't say that the kids changed my mind necessarily. I, may, maybe, maybe that's a legitimate reason, but I wouldn't say that their arguments convinced me. Oh, your arguments convinced me. Arguments that not only I knew beforehand that I also already had considered. And, uh, and I already knew that I was going to bring them to Disneyland regardless. So I'm lying to them. I say, I'm not going to do something that I fully know that I'm going to do. And then I say that the reason that I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do was for this reason, uh, that only affects me, my name, my PR, uh, all the other parents will think I'm bad. If I don't bring my kids to Disneyland, I say, well, that's a, that's a good legitimate reason that's the reason i changed my mind that wouldn't be my reason my reason would be like uh, this is i knew you're going to do this i knew this these were going to be your responses and congratulations you 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 fulfilled the test you, you've passed the test and then we're going to go i wouldn't i wouldn't attribute my repentance my quasi repentance to their reasoning yeah i mean i see what you're saying i mean but, but what i would say is once again, I mean, we don't know what it's like to be a timeless being outside of reality who knows all uh, all, all factors. Uh, we have no idea what that's like. And so what, what God does is he, he communicates to us as, as a being who is, is like us so that we can have this back and forth relationship. God is willing to, uh, to communicate for us to, to treat God in that way. What I'm saying is I don't think that that's ultimately true about, about his being. And, and as far as these arguments... Um, the fact that your kids um, were, were able to figure out the the right argument doesn't mean that you weren't convinced by the argument. No, you were always able to trace your thinking and to get to the right arguments. So it's not as if that your kids' arguments didn't convince you. No, your kids' arguments did convince you the, the entire time. You just wanted your kids to think through the situation and give them the experience of you know of bringing these arguments to you. And, um, and 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 reasoning with you, I would also say there's hypotheticals that are contra uh, contrary to reality, and and so it, there's a sense that it's hypothetical, uh, but it, it is contrary to reality that God was going to uh, destroy them. But ultimately, since He knows Moses and He knows that He's going to intercede and He's setting this whole scene up, that's a that's a it, it is a hypothetical, but it's just it's contrary to reality. 
So, so the thing about that is we, we looked at four different texts about the same incident. We looked at the primary text and three various commentaries uh, recounting this. And they all seem like they're written by open theists. All, all of them seem like they are writing uh, about the literal events that happened in the way that the face value uh, original text reads. And none of them seem to suggest the timelessness that you suggest, uh, the total omniscience of all the future, changelessness, immutability. They all seem to suggest that the face value reading is the accurate and literal reading of it. It's not just a hypothetical event. Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I would just say, brother, that I, I, I look at these, I don't really see them so much as commentaries. I mean, I really see them pretty much just restating uh, as fact the Exodus account. They're, I don't really see much of a interaction with them or much of an explanation. They're just saying, they're just recounting the, the history of the Exodus account. So I don't I don't really see these accounting as, as, as a commentary. And I think the, the most important thing is um, the original audience was not confused of whether or not they were open theists or not. It's not, I mean, that's what we're doing, right? We aren't the original audience. So we have to go and, and reconstruct and rediscover what the Hebraic thought and what the Greek thought is and how we synthesize all of this data to, to figure out the, the underlining uh, theology of the original audience. But it's not as if the original audience is confused until they're reading this book and trying to figure out, okay, is God open theist or does God know all a contingent reality? They already have that theology and they're already reading these texts in alignment with that with that pre-theology so what I'm, that's what i'm saying we have to do we have to do the hard work of synthesizing the the bible as a whole to figure out what that underlying theology is and so then we can read the text as the original audience would have already read the text i i think the overwhelming majority of the bible uh says the exact opposite of that that israel was continually switching over to other religions, the Bells and the Mardukes. And uh, there was a fight from the Israelite prophets to say, God is a God who sees. You think you're doing these things in secret? God sees. They they have to argue current omniscience of events uh, against an audience who's hostile to that conception. In Ezekiel, God, he brings Ezekiel to this door in, in the mound, or he, he there's a mound, there's a hill. And there's like a magical door that God opens up. He brings them in there. And in there, they're, they're worshiping all sorts of strange beasts and idols. And he says, basically, they, they think that I can't see this. I can see this. These, the people in Israel, they were not, they were not uh, Calvinists. They didn't believe in total omniscience of all future events. They denied that God knew present reality, present things. They would say, God doesn't see. There, there's going to be no ramifications for my actions. And that was pretty standard theology. And the response to this is, is not, is not uh, total omniscience of all future events. God has all past, present, current knowledge of all things that were ever going to happen. This is, this is ungenerated knowledge that uh, is, is part of his essential character. That's not the argument. Instead, the counter argument is God does see what you're going to do, what you do do. And there is going to be, you're going to have to account for that at some point in the future. You're going to have to account for the things you did because God does know and God does see. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with a couple of things you said about um, certainly uh, there are people in, uh, and this is, I, I think, a, a point of clarity. When I, I'm not saying that everyone in Israel had the right theology. No, no, certainly not. That there were uh, many people in, in the Israelite uh, original audience that didn't have the right theology and that the prophets were correcting that theology. But that's when it's important to uh, distinguish the remnant 
who did have the the proper theology and those who who did believe in monotheism did believe that God uh, knows the future, God is a rewarder of the future, and all the the general population that didn't have those beliefs and were uh, affected by you know all of the the pagan beliefs and all that. So I would just want to distinguish that this is something that Heiser does as well. Is he he goes into the Old Testament and and shows that they were henotheistic. A lot of the unbelieving Jews were, were henotheistic, essentially polytheistic in, in that respect, and then conclude, okay, that's the theology of, of the writers of the New Testament, or the Old Testament. I'm saying, well, whoa. I mean, that, that's quite a jump. The, the fact is, the, the writers of the Old Testament are fighting against this and saying, no, 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 these people, are, they're not gods. Have no other gods before me. They're opposing this false uh, false theology. That would be the same uh, mistake as if is going against the Judaizers that the Judaizers were the original uh, disciples. No, the original disciples were not the Judaizers, were fighting against the Judaizers. So, so I would just uh, uh, bring that out. And, and then the last thing is, um, I, I would say that in Isaiah especially, uh, the prophets do in fact point to God uh, knowing all things and God knowing the future to correct some of the uh, false theology and distinguish God from all of the, of the false deities. So I would, I would say it isn't true that it's completely absent from from the Bible, this uh, this this conception of God being all knowing, God knowing the past, God knowing uh, the present and the future. So yeah, I think I think we agree there that there's there's a significant large portion of Israel who does not believe God has even current knowledge. And I, I pulled up an article I wrote quite some time ago, uh, just with a couple of verses that I'm not saying you disagree with me here, I, or we we agree together that uh, the the fool says in his heart, God has forgotten; he hides his face; he will never see. You know, this is pretty common. They encourage themselves in an evil manner. They talk of laying stairs secretly, saying, who will see them? Um, but the point isn't necessarily that all of Israel denied uh, current omniscience or even the version of omniscience you ascribe to. Uh, the, the critical element is how do the prophets respond to this? And if you would like to turn to Isaiah, that, that's actually a pretty interesting context because it, it seems to me in Isaiah that it's not an argument for omniscience. It's an argument for ability to accomplish that uh, these, these false idols, they can't do. God says something and then God does something. God can do things. Seems, seems to be the argument against the notion, against the Calvinist notion that God controls all things. That wasn't, that wasn't an Israelite notion that he's arguing against in, in Israelite theology. God can do things. Seems to be his argument. <laughs> I mean, I certainly think that the text is saying that uh, God God can do things and, and God uh, knows things. But I, I think it goes uh, beyond that. And, and he's one of the things that he is saying that what distinguishes uh, Yahweh from these false uh, false gods is that Yahweh knows the future and, and that Yahweh is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And not only does he know the future, but he knows the past and he knows why things happen. And so this distinguishes God from all the false gods. And, of, of being a prophet is to be something that you say or something that you do to uh, be verified. And this is, this is because God knows the future. And so if God knows the future and you're his prophet, then he can tell you something of the future and then you can verify, oh, this person really is in connection with God. So I, I would say that, um, that Isaiah does uh, bring out and, and, and does communicate that God does know the future and this distinguishes and proves that he is a true God versus all all the false deities. So uh, we started this conversation talking about 
how does God know something? You know, is, is this knowledge inherent in God? God is perfectly simple, that his knowledge is identical, eternal with himself. Or is there a mechanism? Does God know because God sees? God sits in heaven and watches the ways of man. I think Isaiah gives us the mechanism that God has declared and God will do. God knows because God does. There's a mechanism there. And it's not the mechanism of omniscience that you ascribe to. There, there, there's a reason God knows. And that reason is explicit in the text. Point two. I'm sorry? Are, are you frozen? No, I, I can see you. I just don't. There's, there's you know, several texts here, which particular uh text in isaiah 40 are you well uh it's it's throughout here yeah, basically god says and then god does let's see okay, okay. god uh, who sits uh, in the yeah, circle I mean, of heaven he, uh he brings princes to nothing Th these are action verbs right uh he's yeah. he's plants okay. he sows yeah yeah i don't have any uh problem with uh, God knowing the future because he declares and decrees uh, and brings to pass. He foreordains the future. Um, I, I would say that I don't think that necessarily uh, suggests that that's how all of the future comes about, but but maybe that is the mechanism of God knowing all the future because he simply ordains it and, and writes it uh, writes it out and writes a script. I think it's also possible that God just simply uh, knows the future, but but I would distinguish this from, from there, there's multiple different types of knowledge. There's, there's knowledge of just uh, propositional knowledge that you just know in, intrinsically, just uh, being, uh, being with, with knowledge. And, and then there's, there's knowledge of, of volitional knowledge, of knowledge of things that you're going to do. So you certainly know, and even in this conversation, you're probably already thinking about things that you're going to say. Well, you have knowledge of what you're about to volitionally do. You can think, after this, I'm going to go eat, I'm going to go sleep, right? You have, have knowledge of, of your volitional actions. One way that God knows the future is simply he knows do. That just uh, he just knows these uh, these 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 realities. That, and there's several examples of God knowing this. But I think the the clearest example, and I'll be interested in your uh, commentary, is the example of, of Peter's denial. That here uh, Jesus is able to uh, predict not just that Peter is going to deny, but that Peter is going to deny him three times. What, what specificity there? And it's going to happen before these specific uh, parameters, namely a cock crowing. And then when he does it, it immediately happens that a cock crows. I mean, this is, I mean, talk about uh, a few seconds off, right? And, and you have the cock crowing twice and he's only denied him twice. And now Jesus is a false prophet. Um, and so, I mean, uh, and, and we compare this with, with James that says that God tempts no one with evil. So if God tempts no one evil, then God is not volitionally causing making Peter deny him. Does God know that Peter is going to deny uh, these propositional knowledge of the future? Okay, so, means. yeah, real quick, what, one piece of clarity before we go there. Was Jonah a false prophet? Jonah, he said 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown? No, certainly not. Uh, 40, so uh, so yeah. it, it's not conclusive that if Jesus was wrong about this, then he would be a false prophet. Um, because in the Jonah incidents, and you'd probably say this was conditional, right? Yeah. And there, there are good reasons why it didn't come about. And so if if it didn't happen, if uh, Peter didn't deny three times before the cock crowed, um, you, you'd, you'd likely, likely, if that's what the Bible recorded, say that that also was conditional, wouldn't you? Um, I would, I'm not sure. I mean, this is that, that counterfactual, right? Hypothetical contrary to reality. I would have serious problems um, if, if Peter, you know, Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. 
and and that you all are going to betray me. And in fact, Peter dies uh, defending Christ, or he's he's the fourth guy on the cross, uh, and he's crucified right there with uh, Jesus. I mean, but I'm in not gonna, the, that would, it, that would the serious problems. In the Nineveh, Nineveh example, it was a warning, right? So they were warned, and then they acted accordingly, and the prophecy, quote-unquote, failed. Conditional prophecy. So if Jesus warned him that this is going to happen, and he, quote-unquote, reacts to it, and then doesn't do it, we, we wouldn't call Jesus a false prophet necessarily. I'm just saying that it, it's not necessary that if this prophecy failed, that Jesus is a false prophet. It's interesting. I, I mean, I need to chew on that and wrestle with that. Um, I've never even thought through that. That's interesting. Um, but but I will say back to the, the Jonah incident that when when God uh, declared that Jonah was going to be uh, destroyed, that that whole incident uh, screams that Jonah sending the prophet to give the people the opportunity. Uh, to to repent, and they recognize that this was I mean, the whole re reason why God didn't just send the fireballs from heaven uh, and, and strike them down, and and went through the effort of sending Jonah to communicate this was to give them a chance to repent. Jonah knows that, and then so when uh, God extends the repentance, Jonah's not like, what, "What's going on? You, you're you're big liar, God." He didn't say that. Yeah. He says, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to do this. This is why I didn't want to come. So even, so Jonah understands that the the, the uh, original audience who hears the message understands if they repent they're going to be forgiven. So I, I don't see in, in any uh, yes. in any way you could take all those that, arguments and just apply it to a failed Jesus prophecy. Uh, all those arguments work. Uh, it was given specifically to him, and so that he has a chance to react and respond. It was a warning, and uh, this is a known attribute of God that God repents when people repent. Jeremiah eighteen. So all of the same arguments you exactly. just made work for Jesus as well. So it's 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 not necessary that Jesus is a false prophet if uh, the prophecy uh, fails. So how does Jesus know this is going to happen? So uh, Jesus was not omniscient, right? He didn't know the day and hour of his return. And so uh, assumably he's he's getting this knowledge from God the Father, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that you need to be omniscient to know uh, a future reality. I, I don't think that that logically follows. Right. Right? I, so, I can know a future reality at being omniscient. So I don't know how Jesus um, knew, but I, I presume that it was either it was either by the Holy Spirit, his divine nature, or or the Father. So one of those. So let's assume he's coordinating with God the Father this incident, and the purpose of the incident I think is very telling. I, I think you would agree with me that the overall purpose is to convict him on a personal level and to turn him into a warrior for God. Ultimately, that that's the goal of this. So I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, um, to become the pillar of the pillar of Christianity on the, on this uh, rock, I'll build the church. Right. Well, certainly, I mean, certainly he, he did restore him and, but I, I'm just not sure if we can say that I think there's a multifaceted uh, meaning here one is to show that that jesus in fact uh knows the future I, I don't think that this this was left on god that christians would would later use the scripture as a, 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 a future and also jesus um sharing in some kind of attribute of god in that way um but i, I think there's also a sense um uh, that yeah i mean peter there's also a, a lived out parable that you know what's peter do when he hears this he trusts in himself he doesn't even pray he falls right. asleep you know, so there's a whole lot here. I just wouldn't it, want to isolate this to one meaning. I think there's a whole 
Oh yeah, multi sermons that are packed in there, right? It, it's multifaceted. So it seems to me Jesus had a very close relationship with Peter. Um, they're using this incident. God and Jesus together are using this incident in order to affect some eventual <laughs> outcome. And it's not just. It, it could be to uh, for, uh, as a future prophecy to foretell events. It seems very personal in nature. It doesn't seem like a declaration to the crowd, so that the whole crowd, you know. Everyone uh, uh, sees this and then believes, oh, this happened just as you prophesied. It seems I mean, yeah. more like a personal conviction. So it seems that God knows that Peter's weak. Uh, he's not the man that he needs to be to set up the church. And so it looks like they orchestrate this scenario in order to convict him. They they know his character. They know he's weak. And, and they use their knowledge of his character in order to predict how he's going to react to these very tense situations. If you're in this situation and there's a chance you're going to go up on the cross too, you might act similarly, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess what the, the thing is, um, well, let me say, I do agree with you that he didn't say this in a public scene. This was a, a private conversation, but it was also a private conversation that was recorded. And Jesus knew that this conversation was going to be recorded. So there, there's multi-levels here. One sense, there was a, a private conversation. Another sense that God knew this, we were going to be talking about this, for example, uh, one day down the line here, many, many Christians uh, from that time would be talking about this. Um, but it, I guess, I mean, this this goes into questions about a libertarian free will, which I'm, I'm more than willing to talk to you about, uh, about how is it that God can predict human beings decisions when their decisions are arbitrary that peter god can know his character all he wants that peter could have equally denied christ no times or, or one time or, or three times or ten times uh so i have i have no idea how god supposedly is able to know peter so well that he knows what arbitrary choices peter is going to make that seems to be inherently but uh, was uh, it arbitrary picture. it seems that let's say for sake of uh argument let's pretend peter's weak and he knows that uh, he's going to deny him in order to save his own skin. Let's say he flags the memory of three different individuals before the rooster crows in order to get them to go confront him about that. It, it seems within the realm of possibility that he's orchestrating the situation to convict him on a personal level. So much so that it's it's if it just happened on its own, if Jesus didn't prophesy this and convict him personally it's probably not as hard-hitting as if your leader the person that you are swearing allegiance to they say i know you're gonna fail me and then you do fail and then you are reminded of this incident which you were told you were gonna fail by the person that you had sworn all your allegiances to it, it uh, heightens the situation so if i understand what you're saying you're saying that god is the one who acts Peter's the put placing him in a situation and then grabbing people and 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 messing with their uh, free will and 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 getting them um you know accuse Peter so that he I mean it sounds like entrapment to me it, it, sounds it is like entrapment. This is God, entrapment God does that sometimes At Nebuchadnezzar um there was a lot massive imposition on Nebuchadnezzar turning him into a wild beast until Nebuchadnezzar repented and followed the Lord. Uh, God's not non-coercive. Uh, I could coerce people. I could tell my kids, you clean your room or I'm going to give you a spanking. God could do that too. That that doesn't mean that my kids don't have free will anymore. It just means that when they're making rational choices, maybe they're going to have to suffer some sort of consequences for those choices. 
And maybe Nebuchadnezzar, in his rejection, has to suffer as a wild beast. I don't have any problem with God uh, bringing punishments and and causing people uh, to to suffer, right? Certainly, I I believe that. What what I have a problem with is uh, how this this kind of view where it predicts that uh, Peter is going to deny him and then uh, ensures that this is going to happen by grabbing people and and, and causing them to be the uh, the temptation— uh, so that that Peter most certainly will fulfill this prophecy, uh, draw, makes again it seems to be suggesting a character of God predicts two scriptures. James, which says that when you are tempted, don't let you don't don't let anyone think that he's being tempted by God, but you're being tempted by your own desires. Well, I don't know how this is applicable to Peter. Peter certainly was tempted by God according to the scheme, um, and, and and he was entrapped by God. And then of course, First uh, Corinthians uh, ten thirteen that says that when you're tempted. Uh, don't let any um, know that no temptation is overtaking. That's not common to man. God is faithful. He will beyond your ability, but with the temptation, will also provide a way of escape. It sounds like God is certainly entrapping him and, and certainly uh, not wanting him to escape and uh, so that he can fulfill his own prophecy. It just, it just, can you see why I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this, uh, this scheme? I can see, I see, I can see definitely why you're uncomfortable with it. So, one thing about language is when we've come across these absolute statements like uh, uh, God cannot change. Well, there are statements in the Bible that man cannot change. Uh, even the Tower of Babel incident that we looked at, God says about man that nothing man proposes will be withheld from him. And basically, if you want to take that language literally, he's he, God is claiming man's uh, omnipotent, that uh, he, he's omnipotent, <laughs> that he could do anything. But but the language is hyperbolic. And so when you come across things like God does not tempt people, does this mean back in uh, Chronicles that when Satan in one in Chronicles and then uh, what is it is uh, Yahweh in uh, in Kings and the same incident, it says that Yahweh tempted David to count the people that Yahweh Yahweh caused this. Uh, and so. What's more probable that uh, James is forgetting this incident or that James is using general rules of thumb or hyperbolic speech that there there are marked exceptions, but it's it's not the general rule? I mean, yeah, I, I would say that I think with, with James, I don't think James has forgotten about this incident. I, I think that God is a sovereign uh, Lord. Uh, it, for, for James to be saying that God never allows us to be tempted would be just nonsense. Uh, of course, God uh, allows us to be tempted. What James is denying is that God is actively causing people uh, to, to be tempted, that God is the one who's enticing you, and but God is the one trying to draw you away into sin. Is that an absolute rule or a rule of thumb? He, I, would, I would say there's an absolute rule, that God is not the one who's drawing you away, but God can certainly such as someone else to uh, to tempt you. But But his desire in that temptation is for you to overcome the temptation um, and sometimes he allows you, you know, he'll allow you to fall into it, but his desire isn't for you to fall and to be damned and be destroyed. That's the desire of the devil. We shouldn't confuse God with the devil. God's desire is for you to overcome evil, just like what he said to Cain, that, that sin lies at the door and seek is, seeks to destroy you, right? But you should rule over it. So he, he will allow uh, Cain to be tempted. He will allow uh, David to be tempted, but his ultimate uh, desire is for him to, uh, to them to overcome it. Yeah. Um, so, so that I, would, I, would Not, take, I wouldn't take that properly there. Uh, not necessarily always. It seems pretty standard, even in Calvinist theology, that God really did want Pharaoh to resist in order to make his power known. 
that uh, uh, God would prefer that uh, Pharaoh pushes back so that he could institute this series of miracles, series of plagues, in order that the entire world fears Yahweh. It, it talks about God hardening yeah, well, Pharaoh's heart. That would take us uh, uh, quite a direction, but I take the view of that, that God's hardening is God allowing you as his own and allowing more evil or you authentic yourself is but to magnify uh, to, to magnify God's glory but uh, the one who is the, that's the one to um, to obey and to let the people go and it's Moses I mean not Moses it's it's Pharaoh who his own wicked nature which God withdraws for, for a sovereign purpose of destroying him um, it, that, that's the relationship I would see there so I, again I would not see God as the active uh, agent in there but yeah yeah that seems to be counter to a standard calvinist systematic theologies where god kind of is the active agent in in john calvin not that i'm saying you can't hold that position or anything or that you have to agree with john calvin it just seems it's an interesting view to me but it seems to me that for these these what rules that people want to take as absolutes there there's possible counterexamples, and it's and the the absolutes might not necessarily be absolute I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with you on, on that per se, but the examples that you gave were examples of hyperbole, where, where it's obvious that hyperbole is being used. Um, and like you said, if we study the genre, we study the literature, we, we, we look at the passage, uh, we, don't, we don't just arbitrarily say that uh, you know, the hyperbole is being here. We have to actually look at it. And so when, when I'm looking at uh, James, I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, especially 1 Corinthians 10, 13, for example, says God is faithful. I mean, how do we apply... Uh, hyperbole there. I mean, well, God is sometimes faithful and sometimes he's unfaithful. It, it doesn't seem to uh, make any sense to, to apply hyperbole in that context. So I don't disagree that hyperbole is possible. I just don't think that in these contexts, hyperbole is what's happening. There. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, th- I think narrative is very telling, especially narrative, which is supposed to be historical in nature, which describes things God does, things God says. And I think I think when uh, th- this is pretty standard uh, ancient Jewish th- theology, uh, very uh, very uh, systematic, where where people who who research the Old Testament, especially, say that Israelite theology they they don't generalize except for based on specific instances. They they look at a large data set, a large set of narratives, and they make general claims about that large set of narratives, rather than uh, the Greek method, where they sit down and they say. What would make God the best God? Oh, he he can't change. Uh, he must have all knowledge. Uh, he must have all power. Uh, he must be outside of time, perfectly simple. That doesn't seem to be how Israel did their theology. Rather, in Isaiah, for example, God's power is illustrated, and it goes back to historical examples of what God has done. God's powerful because he led you out of Egypt. God's powerful because he could count the waters in his hand. Yeah, no, I mean, certainly you're going to find a friend in me and, and, and some of that. I'm, I'm no friend of me, and I'm, I'm certainly no friend of armchair. Uh, uh, to sit back and, and speculate, well, okay, God's the greatest conceivable being, so what's my definition of the greatest conceivable being? And all of a sudden, God has to conform to my random speculations. You're not going to find any friend uh, in, in me in that kind of stuff. But nevertheless, though, I, I also you're not going to find a friend in me thinking, that uh, the, new, the Old Testament or the New Testament uh, came about by people in the desert who were Jewish thinking up 
you, you know, who God was. No, I, I think that uh, up here uh, makes it very clear that that all uh, no no scripture came by man's own thinking up, but as they were moved by the Spirit, they were revealing these things. So I, I certainly think that uh, God, who revealed Himself, is the one who communicated uh, some of these attributes. But but again, I would agree that some of these attributes, if you actually try to support them from the Bible, are much more nuanced sometimes than what we just hear, uh, such as uh, God's omnipotence. If you find in the Bible, you won't find any statement, God can do all things logically possible. I don't disagree with that statement, but you just won't find that statement. Yeah, yeah. Instead, you'll find uh, God created everything out of nothing. God is stronger than all of his enemies. God beats up on the devil like 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 a punching bag. Uh, you'll find statements like, uh, like this. Um, now, I, I do think that uh, you can extrapolate, well, if God can... Uh, create everything out of nothing, then what What can God not do? And even it says that God can, uh, it, there is a few statements that God can bring, uh, you know, the, he can call things that don't exist into existence. He can call the dead back to life. So there are a few statements that, that seem to suggest that. But bottom line is, I'm agreeing with you that if I'm going to say God is omnipotent, I want to back it up with scripture. If I'm going yeah. to say God is omniscient, I'm not going to just speculate about what that means. I'm going to back it up with scripture. Nevertheless, though, this is where we do disagree is I'm saying in scripture that God is demonstrating that he knows the future, and then he says he knows the future. So I have both God saying it, and then God demonstrating it in countless prophecies. I mean, the, the Bible is full of countless prophecies. God. And so that's why I'm concluding with most Christians that we don't need Greek philosophy to come to uh, recognize that God knows the future. And I, I agree with that, that God makes prophecies about uh, the future. He knows the future in the way that I know the future. Uh, one example I use on my program sometimes is at like uh, six months ago, I invested 200 bucks into predict it. And uh, now my portfolio is at $400 because I accurately predicted uh, not only Ted Cruz would win his uh, Senate election in Texas, I predicted Trump would not be kicked out of office by now as well. It I don't have to be omniscient to know things about the future. It doesn't. I don't have to know all details about all future events. I would agree with you. God does know the future, but the question is, how does God know the future? Does He know it? Yeah. I mean, I would say that I'm not sure. I'm making a a, a knowledge claim when I'm saying that God knows the future. I'm not saying that God can simply sometimes uh, predict the future because just like I'm sure uh, you are able to predict the future, you don't really know the future until it comes to pass. And I'm sure that you make wrong predictions, which I, let me ask you this. Do you find in the biblical data, God making faulty uh, predictions about the future that don't, that don't, your interpretation? Would you say that God, in fact, sometimes thinks things are going to happen that don't happen and, and God's predictions are wrong? Correct. Yes. Okay. So, that. so yeah. So I'm saying that these aren't knowledge claims. Then. Knowing the future, this is God uh, believing uh, things about the future that may or may not uh, may, may or may not be true. But well, I, I do want to ask you this. In common vernacular, we would say it's knowing the future. Well, I guess common vernacular, we might be able to say that, but I'm saying that, that that's not quite precision of what it means to actually know the future is to have a hunch about the future. But but again, I want, I want to, why I have you here about uh, what you said about Peter, that God knew his character. Right, he knew his his person of who he was, so that he could uh, make an, uh, a prediction. And, and by the way, we do this all the time. We yeah. see people's uh, character, and we make predictions, and they're extremely—I don't want to say extremely, but often they're pretty accurate, right? It's often not that people, we're not as complicated and 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 arbitrary as, as people try to make us. We can often see, yeah, that guy's about to get in his car, and sure enough, he gets in his car, right? We can make these kind of predictions, uh, even about moral things. But, yeah. but this. 
seems to work much better in 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 my view of uh, uh which which would be uh source libertarian uh, free will or i also think that that's really no different than compatibilism um then i don't know how this fits in what, what it sounds like your view of, of libertarian free will standing would be counter causal uh decision making and the, the ability to be indifferent that your decisions are all things being equal you can do a or not a um and, and and there's no real you you might have reasons but there's no sense of why you chose a or or not a is, is that well how would you define um your view of free will uh the the ability to do else uh, it's interesting god does have failed expectations in the bible like in isaiah in in the parable of the vineyard he says i expected good grapes but i didn't get them so much so that in the in the parable he built a wine press and this this uh parable is saying that this is what i expected and then it didn't materialize and you see that elsewhere in the bible where god expects something i expected judah to return but she did not return is what the language reads and so it seems that god has failed expectations uh, admittedly in the Bible by his own words. I, th I think we should pay attention when when God is actually talking, when when the, the source quote is attributed to Yahweh, where Yahweh in Exodus 32 repents. If, if, if God is saying that he repents, especially in Ezekiel uh, of, of the Exodus 32 narrative, I think we should give privilege to that communication that God is giving us in his own words, in his own quote. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I think that we need to understand that how the original audience would have understood, and that's what I was saying. That uh, we need to understand that, and, and since we don't have access to the original audience, what we do have access is the the canon of scripture, and so we we systematize all of this. We need to systematize these scriptures with contingent statements like this. We need to uh, systematize other scriptures that seem to suggest that God knows the, the future and determines it. And we put this all together and try to figure out, okay, they both can't be literally true, right? God can't literally know all the future and then be surprised. And so then we have to decide, okay, which uh, language is metaphoric and, and which language is, is to be taken a uh, literal. And so what I'm saying is that I would ultimately take uh, this kind of language as, as metaphoric and, and believe that it, it's, again, describing God in anthropomorphic uh, ways. And, 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 and just this, it's, it basically, it's supposed to be communicating that God is disappointed. The same thing with the, the language of repentance. Uh, when we repent, when we're, we're sad and we relent, we feel great sorrow. I don't know if you ever repented on anything. Uh, that, no, never. I just joking. You do something and you just you feel terrible about it. You just feel absolutely sick in your stomach. And in fact, I would say that's probably the worst feeling to, uh, that people know at themselves. Like, if only I would have known, I wouldn't have done this. And it just eats at them. In fact, the other day, my son got injured, and and I felt that if I if I just would have known, I could have got in there and prevented the injury. It was it was actually uh, really terrible. Thank God. No. He, uh, oh he, no. Fine. It's fine, but but I'm just saying that you you can understand that kind of, of pain and, and, and sorrow and anguish, and I think that if we look at that language throughout the Bible, that's what we find is that this is a description, just like God's right hand is God's uh, metaphoric way of describing God's power. Then this relenting language is a metaphoric way of saying that God really, really is disturbed and hurt by Saul. He's really hurt by humanity's uh, wickedness and, and evilness. And it is likened to a man uh, relenting and repenting. So, so that's how I would understand uh, that language. And especially that's a great example because the Bible says he repented. And then in the same context and in the same book, it says he does not repent. He's not like a man and he doesn't repent. So we have A and not A. Well, 
you know, like I know, a contradiction is something cannot be a time and in the same way or in the same sense. So unless we're going to hold you, you hold that the Bible has no errors, I assume. Yeah. Would you? Okay. So, so then we can't say that this is a mere contradiction. So we have to say, okay, one must be being used metaphorically and one must be used, uh, being used uh, literally. So, so that's how I would synthesize that data and say that, no, I, I don't think, um, any of those scriptures actually suggests that God is changing his mind, but emotions, but so but again, I, I do. Uh, how, how would, how would you take a sorry. data point in which God converts a unilateral promise into a conditional promise? It was a unilateral promise, but then events occurred and then God as a response converts it to a, uh, a conditional promise. An example of that. Well, do you want to? Do you want to? Before I pull it up, do you want to speculate uh, how you would uh, handle that? Um. Uh, well, I. Well, okay. Um. I. I would think of the Jonah example. Uh. There is no. There was no conditional. It's just I'm going to destroy you, right? I mean, that's how he said I'm going to destroy you, and then all of a sudden, uh, they 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 meet uh implied condition. Well, that that's the answer right there. They meet an implied condition, and all of a sudden, uh, that that judgment doesn't happen. And, and Jeremiah 18 this is the perfect example of God being. God being the potter. So I would say that most of these uh, unilateral, any example I, I could think of, these unilateral uh, examples are actually uh, implicit conditional. Uh, and so they're always, I would say almost always there's conditions in a covenant. It's just that what we call unconditional is usually God promising uh, that these conditions will be met. So that God is, is saying that I'll make sure that these conditions are met. So that's basically my approach would be saying that almost every statement is an implicit conditional statement. It could, it could be, but it, it reads, this is 1 Samuel 2.30. This is Eli's sons. So Eli's sons turn out to be pretty bad guys, and uh, God ends up killing these guys. And he's talking to Eli, and he says, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, this is indicating some sort of change, was unilateral, it will be forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. He's saying, this thing that I promised that was going to be forever, it's far from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. He's saying, I'm taking this unilateral promise yeah. that was forever and converting it into a conditional promise that only applies if you fill up your end of the bargain. Yeah, to me, again, this if you could pull up Jeremiah 18, that would be helpful. This is a perfect example of, of Jeremiah 18, where God explicitly, uh, same thing in Ezekiel. Uh, but Jeremiah 18 is the, the, the best passage on this. says that I, I, I'm the potter, and you're the clay, and I always have the right to, uh, if you turn out wicked, I always have the right to come and smite you. And if you turn out good, I always have the right to restore you. So this is God emphatically saying, Understand that every single one of my promises are are conditional; that they're implicit condition, even if I don't if I don't state it. And why, so, an example of this: Why would the original promise be forever, and then why would it had to be converted to a conditional if it was a conditional all along? No, I'm saying that there are there are always uh, implicit uh, stipulations that that aren't that aren't stated. For for example, uh, when we when we marry, we say till death do us part. Right? We say, you know, richer for poor, for death for poor. I've never heard a marriage vow that says, unless you cheat on me. And if you cheat on me, you're out of here. That like, was my, nobody, my marriage vow. No, it's okay. 
<laughs> I hope not. Uh, that's just tacky. That's just tacky and 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 it just it's bad company. Like you just don't do that, right? But nevertheless, there's not a most people unless you have uh, one of those people who believe that marriage, divorce is never permitted. Uh, but but most people would recognize that no 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 that it, implicit in this is if you meet the stipulations of the covenant, which is namely that you're going to be faithful to me. If you start uh, cheating on me and having multiple affairs, I'm not I'm not bound to this. But you don't need to state it in the initial uh, covenant covenant document. So I would say the same thing here. That yes, God uh, made a, a statement to them that He would bless them and that they would be uh, His house would be with Him uh, forever. But that is a conditional. That's an implicit conditional statement. Why would He yeah, have to convert it, it to a conditional if it always was a conditional? I don't think He's converting. He's just making it explicit. He says, "But that, now." Then He says, "Whoever honors Me, I will honor." I, so it goes from your house forever. Then it says, yeah. "But now I say, far be it from Me." So He's rejecting what He originally said. That's rejected and it's replaced with the conditional. And so if well, the original like, had the uh, Go ahead. If the original had the implicit condition in it, then he wouldn't have to convert it to a conditional. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to look at that text again. I, I'm not yeah. seeing that. I'm not necessarily seeing that God is saying uh to Eli, okay, we had an unconditional uh covenant here, but now I'm not so sure. So now I'm gonna give you a conditional covenant and we'll see about whether or not I'm going to judge you. I would say, no, I don't think that's what's happening in that context. More like he's saying, we had this uh, this covenant where I said I was going to bless you, but actually you turned out wicked and your son, well, not you, Eli, per se, but your son turned out wicked and now I'm going to smite you. And, and this, uh, and now he's explaining that, you know, basically he went off till death was part. And now he's saying, I'm divorcing you, you not because I'm suddenly unfaithful and I'm suddenly a liar. Once again, I don't know how... Uh, you would understand Hebrews, where it says that God uh, cannot lie, and, and by uh, unchanging the unlying things, God, it, huh? It's the unlying God. I don't think it's making yeah, a yeah. metaphysical statement. Okay, but are you saying that God can lie then? He lies all the time in the Bible. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Uh, you know, well, I'm glad that you you said it like that. I mean, but um, then then if God is is lying all the time in the Bible, then then God is sinful. God no, is, not all I, lies not, are sins. I, I don't. I what, what? What do you mean? That not all lies are sins. God says that all liars will end up into, uh, into the lake of fire. I mean, yeah. it, he even well, tells us that we shouldn't break our oaths and let our yes be yes and our, our, our no be. He even says that uh, that he's the God of truth and and a falsehood is not in him. So. Um, that's true. Uh, so he doesn't lie to his people. He doesn't lie to uh, people he loves and he's trying to protect. But if you're lying to the Nazis to protect Jews in your household, you're not sinning. You're, you're not sinning. Uh, you see various lies throughout the Bible. The first Kings 22 incident is very interesting because God puts a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. And the purpose of this is to get Ahab to go to war in order. So it's to deceive Ahab to go to war in order for Ahab to get killed. And it's this divine courtroom scene where there's uh, intrigue going on, where you got to lie to all the prophets to lie to the king to get him to do a certain action. Yeah. So uh, what you said though is that God doesn't um, he doesn't lie to his people, but with the case that we were originally talking about was Eli, who was his people. If he originally said this is an unconditional covenant, it's that not a lie. I, I mean, That's because uh, a lie is a statement with intent to deceive. 
if it's only a lie if he knew all future events. But what I guess, but if he, what you're saying is it's only a lie if he knew all future events. So it sounds like you're admitting that God is not saying that if you, that there's not implicit covenant, it's not implicitly broken. If you don't meet conditions, then he can change his mind and, and not, uh, you know, the, the, the dish out the blessing that he's promised, which sounds like you're agreeing with me all of a sudden again, is that there are implicit conditions. Um, and, and, but you're just saying that God just doesn't know that he won't meet those implicit uh, conditional statements. And I'm just saying that that, that, that does, but the, the bottom line is we're both agreeing about the fact that there's implicit conditions in, uh, in, in God's uh, covenant promises. Yeah. So if I tell my kids, I'm going to bring them to Disneyland, knowing full well, that will never happen. I'm a liar. But if I say I'm going to bring you to Disneyland and I believe it's true and then they become naughty and then I revoke that, I wasn't a liar when I said I was going to bring them to Disneyland. So yeah, a, a lie, unless, unless what? I'm unless tricking them? Unless it's a conditional statement. If you and, and you, you know, again, what you said, that it's not a lie to make a conditional statement. If then statements are not lies, as long as the only way an if then statement is a lie is if you. Um, meet the if, and then you don't get the then, right? If you're not naughty, then you go to Disneyland. They're not naughty. You say, I'm not taking you to Disneyland. That which, would be a lie. But if then same is not a lie. Which then makes the Eli instance really good. Because what if, if you have in the Eli situation, a unilateral promise being converted to a conditional promise, that, that tells us that the original promise wasn't conditional. And the original promise would have been a lie if he did know the events that would happen. Um, Just I mean, for... I, I, Hypothetically, yeah, hypothetically that hypothetically, hypothetically what? Hypothetically, let's say God knows um, that uh, Eli's house would not be eternal. Hypothetically, let's say He gives them a unilateral, unconditional promise that Eli's house will be conditional or, or will will be forever, but later on revokes it and then changes it into a conditional. In that hypothetical, God would be lying. I'm agreeing with you that if if God, uh, if if God says one thing and then and does something else, then that would make God untrustworthy. And th I mean, that's what breaking oath is, right? To, to say you're going to do something and then not and then not to do it. But that's why I'm saying that I find this to be um, an implicit condition. And again, I, I've, it sounds like to me that you also uh, are, are kind of smuggling that in there, and that's the whole reason of the future when he finds out that these implicit conditions are broken that's why god changes it all of a sudden into a conditional but even that idea means that okay it was always implicitly conditional if he if these these conditions were met so he changed it into a conditional means that it always was implicitly conditional so the jeremiah text it, 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 you brought up is very interesting because not only in the parable god doesn't finish what he originally sets out to do he has to remake it after the clay is marred in his hand and and the parables interpreted and it's interpreted, if a nation, if I promise them blessings and then they turn from that, I won't do what I thought I was going to do. And then he says, if there's an evil nation that becomes good I, and I said I was going to destroy them, I won't do what I said I was going to do. It uses the two different words. It uses, I won't do what I thought I would do. I won't do what I said I would do. And so basically yeah. it's saying that based on unfolding events and based on changing expectations that my promises can change. I don't. I don't have. I don't have any. But again, that's what. That's why I brought Jeremiah eighteen. I, I do want to answer your uh, First Kings uh, scripture that you have put up here. But that's why I brought up uh, for, uh, Jeremiah eighteen because Jeremiah eighteen tells us 
that God interacts with uh, humanity and people in time. And so if, and it also tells us that all of his statements, that they are implicitly conditional. God, he's saying in Jeremiah, I always have the right to respond to your actions. And so if I tell you that you, I have blessing for you and all of that, and you go wicked, God will not be mocked. God will strike you down. You can never try to say, well, God, you said right here, and I don't see any, I don't see any uh, conditions that will never work with God because God is saying, I, I am the potter. I always have these conditions and I always reserve for myself you if you uh you know if you decide to rebel against me and I always have the right to also change my mind and forgive you if you repent. So that's why I find Jeremiah 18 to be so wonderful because it tells us everywhere that there are implied conditions just like we uh, with the marriage vows we don't uh, we but don't the, uh, give but the conditions. But the conditions are I thought one thing and then a different thing happens. He won't do what he thought well, I, he was going to do and he won't do what he said he was going to do. Well, I would I would have to look at the thought there. I would take the thought there is is the uh, is is his intention. The whole idea is your thoughts or your plans, right? Your what your intentions are, and so the the idea is that these blessings that were going to uh, flow to you of because you were obedient to God, those are revoked. Just a perfect example is the Jonah the Jonah incident with Nineveh. Uh, well, that was an example of the destruction that God had planned. All of those things, those hypotheticals, oh, they're out of the door, and, and now the blessing is coming down, and the reverse can happen as well. Mm. Um, so I'm just saying that's why I take Jeremiah 18 as to be uh, the paradigm scripture for answering a lot of these uh, supposed changing the mind. They're not changing the mind. They're just implied conditions uh, of being met. But but I do want to answer your your uh, thing about uh, First Kings and and saying that um, I, I don't think First Kings says that God is a liar. I think First Kings now, says that God— or do, do you got the verse I got pulled up? Uh, verse 23. Yeah. Now therefore, yeah. behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, the Lord has declared disaster against you. Yeah, certainly. I, but I don't, I don't find, uh, I don't deny this at all. I don't take any, I don't take this metaphorically. I take this absolutely literal that God put a, uh, a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. Uh, and so that the, the people would listen to uh, the, the, ironically though, if you look at the context of this, the funny thing is a prophet is telling the king that this has happened. Yeah. This isn't really a secret at all. God has said but to him. The lies oh, have already way, happened. The lies have already yeah, happened. This has already happened. You, you've been lied to king. And I'm telling you that I'm the one who lied to him. He doesn't listen. And then he uh, strikes Micaiah here. And then ultimately uh, like an idiot goes out the battle and, and dies. Uh, Cause he, he, he ultimately doesn't believe. But, uh, but no, uh, I, I, I would have no problem with God using uh, evil spirits, using Satan, I believe that this lying spirit is a demon here that God uh, permits and, and allows them to do things and, and intends, and they can't do anything outside of God's will because God is sovereign. But but there's one thing for God to say to Satan, you can tempt my servant Job. It's another thing for God to uh, go around tempting Job and, and God being the agent himself, beating on Job and, and taking his family. Um, well, that's the first thing. The second thing is, go ahead. In Job, uh, in the last chapter, it says that God brought all that evil on Job. God is blamed as the active agent in Job's suffering. Yes, but but we know that, in fact, that God actually wasn't the active agent, that here God is being described as uh, the actor because of his sovereignty and because he actively, passively permitted and handed Job over to Satan. So so that's that's why we uh, we can find, that's it, why I get There's responsibility, right? So like, King David, he killed Uriah the Hittite. Although he didn't do it himself, he didn't he didn't go murder him with a sword oh, or anything have. like that. King David he, killed. 
No, oh, not King David. No, I thought you said God. I'm oh. saying God might have. Right, but in the King David incidents, King David killed, murdered Uriah the Hittite, and oh, okay, King David yeah. was blamed for murder because what King David did is he authorized, he planned, he orchestrated this death. He gets the blame for the murder. Um, you you don't you don't get off the hook if you use secondary agents. Okay, yeah. So I thought you were talking about your Uriah. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, no. With with uh, with David, certainly David is uh, to blame because he he orchestrates, he plans, he he sets him up, um, and and authorizes his, his death. But with God, this is that creature creator distinction that God can in fact uh, permit and allow without him actually being the the causal agent, because because otherwise, uh, you know, God just wouldn't be sovereign. This is something that is just necessary that that God has to uh, allow and permit everything to be to happen. Yet the Bible continuously says that God is not the author of evil, that God is not himself the, the agent, God doesn't tempt anyone with evil, so forth and so on. So that, that's just God, God will send them strong delusions, right? What does that mean? Yeah, it's the same thing. God, I think that's probably uh, either God uh, withdrawing his grace, but God doesn't obligate to give you grace, right? He Grace is, by definition, free. So God can withdraw his grace and allow you to be more hardened and get into your delusion all, all he wants. Or God can also, God, one of God's graces is maybe protecting you from demons. So if, if God is protecting you from demons or holding back demons so that they can't further deceive humanity, and God says, fine, uh, you want to hate me? You want to rebel against me? You want to do all these wicked things? All right, I'm going to let the demons have more reign and control over you. Then, then, then once again, God is doing that, but God is not actively the one who is, uh, is tempting anyone. So I would never say that God uh, actively tempts anyone, but I would certainly say that God can permissively allow you to be more evil or he can allow someone else to tempt you or demonic activity or something like that. And so what would be a lie? God saying he's going to do something and then not do it directly? Would yeah. that be a lie? Yeah. Well, like the Hebrews example, that God made an oath. God said uh, promises to uh, to Abraham that that he was going to uh, you know to bless him and and make his name great and and that his descendants were going to spread throughout all the earth. And in fact, God didn't do that. If God would to turn back on that, uh, and just decide he's not going to do that, then that would be a lie. Or if God says to Christians, here's a good one. If God says to Christians, if you will believe in my son, right, repent of your sins and believe in my son for salvation and trust him for his finished work, you will have eternal life. And then I die, stand before God. And and I said, I believe in your son. I, you know, I, I trusted him. I was a true believer. He says, yeah, I changed my mind. No, no, I don't, I don't really want you. I don't like curly hair. Uh, you have black curly hair. That's it. I've decided black curly hair is a stipulation for hell. You're out of here. I mean, to, that would make God a liar, right? Then God would be un, untrustworthy and untrue to his word. And so that would, in fact, be a, a lie from God, which far be it from God. I don't think God is ever going to do that. God God is the, mm -hmm. the non-lying God. God is incapable of lying. He, he's not going to lie to us. So I think in, in the First Kings 22 situation, God, God is holding a corp. He says, you go lie. It says that God has put lying spirits in the mouth of all these prophets. I, I don't see how you could just make a distinction. Oh, he didn't, he didn't do it himself. Um, I, I don't think that's going to absolve him of culpability for these lies as if he, he's not the one orchestrating, committing these lies and carrying out this entire situation. Yeah, I would say it certainly does. I, I give it in, in, and actually if you look, look right up there. It says, and the Lord said to him, well, actually before that, he says, what shall we do? 
And then verse 21, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. The spirit saying, I got a plan, God. I know what to do. I will lie. And the Lord agrees and said, all right, go and, and, and be the lying spirit. I'll give an example of, of the difference. So imagine that you come home and, and you, maybe I don't want to put this on you, right? Imagine a man comes home. A man comes home and he looks at his cell phone. And he's told his wife that he's going on a business trip on the weekend. And he looks at his cell phone and he sees communication from his wife to uh, to his neighbor saying that my husband said that, you know, that he's going on a business trip and then we can get together as soon as uh, as soon as he leaves. And so you see this communication. And so you just you tell your wife, uh, you know what, actually, um, my you 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 decide to reschedule your, your work schedule or whatever and say, you know, what? actually, I don't need to leave on the weekend. I'm leaving tonight. And then you leave tonight, but then you actually don't leave tonight. And then you wait for her and you watch her to go out and commit adultery. And then you confront her and, and so forth and so on. You had full knowledge of this, right? You even set up some of the scenarios to, to orchestrate the event and even got out of the way to allow this event to happen. But, but no, I don't think anyone in the right mind would blame you for the incident, like that you were somehow uh, responsible for the adultery that occurred in that situation. But I'd be responsible for the lie, adultery. right? You say what? I'd be responsible if I'm in, in the situation you set up. Correct me if I'm uh, wrong. You want to call I, that a lie. I lie to my wife by saying I'm going to leave right now on my business trip, and then I don't. Yeah, well, potentially, you know, you can break down that uh, analogy. Maybe he does actually leave on the business trip if you want to call that a lie. Maybe you can say that wasn't a lie. That was uh, using deception, and, and you can mm. say that that was a justified act of deception. You know, okay, I'll, maybe when, when I go that route or not, my point is, is him getting out of the way and allowing her evil intention doesn't make him morally culpable for the sexual infidelity that she does. While if he instead contacts the neighbor who is apparently the most attractive man in the world, right? And then refuses to, cop, uh, to come together with his wife for months and, and, and you know, and then uh, contacts the neighbor to come over there. When, you see what I'm saying? If he's orchestrating the event- right. Or he's getting the wife to all of a sudden want the neighbor and trying to pay off the neighbor to commit adultery, then all of a sudden that he's much more culpable. He's now culpable for the action. So I don't, I don't see uh, practically how these distinctions you're trying to make are very helpful. So let's say that God's online. He can't tell a lie. Um, but he, he uses other people to tell lies for him in his stead that he commands to go do and, and then they do it. Then he doesn't get the blame or whatever. Uh, he tells the writers of Hebrews to write these things about him, uh, but he's, he's telling the writer of Hebrews to lie. So it, it, what, what writer of Hebrews to lie? What do you mean by that? Okay. In the scenario, in the hypothetical, hypothetically, he told Paul to lie. Hypothetically, he told all the 12 disciples to lie. Uh, the whole Bible is now lies. God's still online, but since he used intermediary means to lie to us, um, then then what? I, well, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is he's. it's not simply a hand in a glove. It's not simply that, that God is the one, even in this case, God did not say, I need a liar. Where can I get me a liar? He did not say that. In fact, he just had a divine counsel in this uh, evil spirit stands forward and says, I will accomplish your will by uh, destroying um, this wicked king, and I'll do it by being a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And the God says, I will allow you to do that. So God allows uh, this, this uh, demonic spirit to, to do the lying is not the same as God telling the lying spirit to lie. This is an act of active permission is what I'm saying. God knows about it. God, he, the demon has to get permission. 
and then and then God allows the demon to do it, but God himself is not the lying spirit. That's says, the distinction I'm making. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster against you. It seems like uh, the writer of Kings is definitely attributing this to God. Yeah, I don't have any problem with that. And what I'm saying is that we find this, this is how I explain uh, many scriptures like this that talk about, uh, that, that give an active role for God. But then you, as you study the text, just like with the Job example, you realize, oh, God was not nearly as active as I thought. The, the, the activity of God was his active permission to allow Satan to do it. The activity of God here, even though it's being described to God as actively doing, it's actually not God actively doing it. God is uh, actively permitting that the only action that God is doing actively is this this active active permission, um, but but this is to me this is a perfect example of, of of God permitting and then the authors of the Bible saying that God actively did it because they see His permissive uh, permissive act to be an active action of God. Yeah, I, I see it as like a David Uriah situation. Uh, the writers of the Bible understand that culpability and blame and and responsibility isn't isn't uh, mitigated by having intermediate actors and whoever's orchestrating the situation ultimately gets the blame is, is how I'm reading this and how it, it seems to me be, be to be the more natural reading, if that makes sense. I, I, I see what you're saying. I, I just, I just think with the example, David is actively to do his will and he's using them like gloves. David is not permitting things to happen. Uh, David is actively causing those things to happen and, and, and getting them to do. And I don't see that happening uh, with God. That's number one. And number two is um, I, I just I don't know how you can necessarily escape this. Um, God may not be omnipotent to you, but I'm sure he's powerful. And God yeah. might not know all things, but I know I'm sure he knows some things. <laughs> I, I think think he knows many things. And, and so God has the resources and the power to prevent a lot of things. And, and God knows about a lot of things. And yet a lot of wickedness happens. So I, if you're not willing to make this distinction that God can permit things uh, to happen and himself not to be culpable, then I don't see how you escape God being culpable for every single wicked act that he knows about, which presumably is a whole lot of them, if well, that makes sense. The writers of the Psalms sure think God's culpable for a lot of evil. They say, uh, you're, you're righteous. They suffer all day long. Why do you hide your face, Lord? Uh, they call him to account. Job calls God to account, saying, uh, look at the things that are going on here. The wicked prosper. And me, the innocent person, uh, all the sufferings uh, coming upon me. So he seems to try to call God to account as well. It seems to be almost the natural theology of the writers of the Bible that sometimes if, if the wickedness is happening and God's not stepping in, then God does share some of the culpability in that wickedness that does happen. Yeah, I mean, I would say with Job uh, that that uh, Job uh, feels that natural inclination, and the and, and the Bible is so real to us that it, it shares the actual experience of God's people, like Job, like the psalmist. Uh, the, everyone is operating from a perspective that God is uh, all sovereign. Th this would be uh, you, you talked about the, the scriptures are not written by Calvinists. I would say, well, yes, they are, and this actually, and, and everyone actually naturally said everyone is. Uh, open theists. I would say everyone is naturally uh, Calvinistic in this way, believing in the sovereignty of God. That's why when they kick their toe, they blame God. Well, what did God have to do with it? I mean, do, do people really think that God is actively causing? No, they recognize that God is sovereign in control of all things, and so they are ascribing this uh, this to God. But ultimately, with Job, Job, when he's confronted by God, says that he repents in ashes and, and sackcloth. He realizes that he doesn't know what he's talking about, and that he has no right to to judge God. And so, same thing in that. 
uh, passage of uh, Malachi we went to. That these people are saying it's vain, and God is saying, no, 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 wait. You, you're saying it's vain now, but when you see the, the fullness of judgment, you won't be uh, having that kind of uh, a declaration. So I think that ultimately uh, God will make all rights wrong. And in the end, when, when his judgment is meted out, we won't have these accusations against God and think that God was uh, morally culpable for the evil that he committed. Th that's what I'm arguing, that God is not uh, morally culpable and God will bring all of uh, acts, uh, acts to justice. And again, I, I don't think you disagree. Would you say that God is morally culpable for the murders that happened on earth, that God is uh, guilty uh, by association because he allowed the, the murders to happen? In some sense, uh, Jeremiah 12, 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you, let, but let me talk to you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are they, those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them, yes, they have taken root, but they grow, yes, they bear fruit, and you are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. And so yeah, he says, yeah, you're righteous God, but let me, let me criticize you. Let me ask you about how you're handling the affairs of this world. Why is this situation? Why does it exist, Lord? And so yeah. you you can't you can't just uh, throw throw off all blame for your creation. You create something. You you are somewhat culpable for it. I think we see this play out, especially in Genesis six, where God blames Himself. God's not repenting of uh, the people becoming wicked. Uh, the repentance is specifically described of God's own action. God repented that he had made man. It's not saying, oh, I'm sorry that they've become so wicked. He's repenting of his own actions. He's blaming himself for the situation that has occurred. Yeah, I mean, I, I just would ultimately, we, we talked about Genesis 6. I would say that that's a description of God's uh, great sorrow and, and grief that humanity has gone wicked. I would say uh, Jeremiah is is talking from uh, an earthly uh, uh, phenomenological perspective. We find that throughout the Bible. He's he's describing how he feels that the wicked are prospering, the wicked are uh, are are not being judged, and and he's frustrated with uh, with this. But as we understand this holistically from the Bible, we see uh, the the answer to the, the theodicy, the answer to this is God's final judgment and God's uh, day of uh, accounting. That and one that, day that, that is that, right. yeah that, that is what they point to. Uh, but we we shouldn't be condemning. This type of speech, this is normal accepted speech in Israelite theology, it finds its way into the Bible very explicitly. A God blaming himself in Genesis. Let's let's say it's figurative. It's just pointing to his great sorrow. The language as written points to a self-reevaluation. And so we, we shouldn't condemn that type of speech about God. We shouldn't say, oh, he's above these categories that are normally attributed to God throughout the text. I mean, we're just ultimately uh, there. We're just ultimately disagreeing. Um, it, it sounds like you're, uh, again, assuming, which is fair, but you're assuming that your interpretation is correct. And, and I'm saying that I don't think that that if, if the underlining theology, which I'm finding in, 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 the, in the Bible, is in fact that uh, that God does not change in his moral character and that God does know the future. Right. If we if we can just hypothetically, if we do know that God does know the future and that his moral character doesn't change. Then the only then I believe that you would probably reconcile these scriptures the same way that I reconcile these scriptures of realizing that there are figurative description descriptions describing God's moral sorrow or whatever, but not meant to be uh, taken to, to teach metaphysical claims. That, that's what uh, ultimately I'm arguing. And that's how I'm systematizing the Bible. And and one thing that does give me comfort, and this kind of begins at the beginning of our conversation, is I'm not alone here. 
I'm not the only Christian who's ever yeah. uh, come to these conclusions, right? I, I stand in a, in a rich tradition of, of exegetes that uh, that 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 have also uh, reconciled the Bible in this way. So I'm not standing in isolation from the church, and I am seeing this. I'm not just relying merely on the church. I'm trying to systematize the Bible. I'm not trying to twist it, and I know you might feel I am twisting ultimately, but I'm not trying to twist the Bible. I'm just trying to harmonize how if God does know the future and God is unchangeably good, like like James says, for example, that He's uh, He doesn't change uh, like the like the sun and, and all of that, but He's every good gift comes from God and He's unchangeably so. No if that's turning, true, yeah. then exactly. If that's true, then then how do I understand this language found in in Genesis six? And I would say you would understand it as a a metaphor for God's suffering. Oh, I, I could appreciate your reading. I could appreciate uh, a use of some sort of metaphor that communicates some sort of truth, which is it's not typical with uh, Calvinist exegesis. Like John Calvin writes that it's just baby talk, God mumbling uh, sweet nothings to us, basically, uh, because even God having those emotions, communicating deep, deep emotional reactions to things uh, tends to invalidate uh, classical conceptions of uh uh, unchangingness, uh, immutability, divine simplicity, uh, God being above predicates, it tends to negate a lot of that classical theism. And so I, I could appreciate your perspective. I could appreciate how you're reading the text. And, and I don't disagree that a lot of the texts that we're dealing with can be read in those alternate senses. But I, I think ultimately the narrative takes precedence. If, if there's an event that happens in a narrative, and that event explains the narrative, explains motivations, ex explains twists that happen within the narrative. And especially in the Exodus 32 case where you have future commentators echoing not not this uh, this spiritual reading of it where it's a divine setup for Moses' sake, maybe. that not I'm not attributing that to you. I'm not saying that that's what... Now, a lot of people say that this was all for Moses' sake. Uh, this was all to... Uh, prayer is not for us. Prayer doesn't change us. Uh, or prayer, prayer is not for God. Prayer doesn't change God, but prayer changes us is a pretty common common claim. Uh, they, they don't seem to take that position from looking back on those texts, the future commentators. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I certainly, I wouldn't... Uh, James says that you have not because you ask not. That's not changing God. That's changing you. Change the things that you have. So I, I certainly, uh, I certainly don't think that. Uh, I think prayer does change you, though. By the way, uh, if you ask God to send out workers to the harvest, often God will, you know, you know tap on your shoulder and say, "I'm sending you." And so, yes, prayer does in fact uh, change you, but it doesn't merely change you. It, it changes other people's uh, circumstances. Just uh, it, it changes the world out there. It changes uh, all kinds of uh, various things. As far as um, uh, classical. Theism and uh, strong views of simplicity and strong views of uh, immutability. Uh, it's often difficult to to wade through that literature and exactly what they're saying. Uh, some people will say uh, th they'll make some statements uh, that sound very strongly like they deny that God has any emotions at all, and then they will say, uh, you know, what God has as uh, what we have as passions, God has as perfections. Well, perfect what? Perfect love. So, so sometimes you you have to get through what they're saying, and they're actually not ultimately denying that God has love. They're just saying that God's love is analogous to our love. Our love is imperfect. God has a perfect love. So I would say just we have to wade through that literature and and to be patient with them and, and to say what precisely are you saying? But but I am agreeing ultimately that I think that simply waving this language away and saying oh this is just God baby talking and and, and that that's unsatisfying. 
there is something more is going on in Genesis than than simply uh, sounding like a man, but not meaning to say what it says. But but I am saying that um, as we think through these metaphors, they're not that difficult. Like God uh, smelling the sweet aroma of, of of the burnt offerings. I don't think that it's supposed to communicate that God has a nose. It's not that challenging to figure out. Okay, what does smelling the pleasing aroma mean? It means that God is satisfied. God knows and experiences and receives and enjoys the worship of his people. Same thing with God's eyes burn against the wicked. What does that mean? Does it mean he has eyeballs? No, it means that God sees and he's angry at the wicked. So it's the same thing if you go into that Genesis 6 uh, passage. It's full of sorrow. It says that God was sorry that he made man, right? And he relented that he made him. So it's not like some wild speculation that this is supposed to uh, be describing God's great sorrow. You just look around the text. And, and think through the, the metaphor of sorrow, and it becomes apparent of what that meaning is supposed to be. But what's the object of his sorrow? What is he sorry about? It's his own actions. He's, well, he's... I, I don't, I, I don't see that. I, I think that he is, he is, uh, so sorrowful about the the evilness of of humanity. He he's greatly anguished about how wicked humanity has come, and that is likened to a human being creating something and it going bad. Right, and then if if someone created something and it went bad, you'd feel such great sorrow because that you created this thing that destroyed thousands and thousands of lives, and that that sorrow and anguish is how what's being pictured as God to describe how much God uh, feels bad about uh, how how much God is in pain because of the wickedness of humanity. You might say, in some sense, he's responsible. I, I don't. I don't think responsibility is well, supposed to be communicated here. I know. I was. I was just hitting you from the side there, like. Whoosh. But uh, the language here is very open theistic. I mean, yeah, it might. It might be metaphorical. Uh, the Lord saw the wickedness, so it's it's describing maybe a visual communication on the face value. Uh, there might be a metaphor. It might be. It's like trying to communicate something else. He sees the wickedness of man was great on earth and every intention of the thought of his heart was on only evil continually. Then the Lord regretted he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So it's, it's this, this double situation where he regretted it and it grieved him. What did he regret that he regretted man being made that he made man. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man. So then it turns into a first person narrative. Not only does the narrator say it, but God says it. I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man, animals, creeping things, birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so yeah. there, there's the narrator, there's God. It's saying it three times over. Um, it, it it seems like it seems like God is legitimately regretting his own actions. Yeah, I mean, I, you can take it that way if you take it on uh, in that literal way. I'm just saying that this idea of regret uh, res results in, in deep sorrow and anguish is recognizable by anyone who's ever uh, dealt with regret. And, and even in this language, we have uh, right after it says that the Lord regretted in verse six, it said it grieved him in his heart. So right here, I'm not just making up that there's a connection between regretting and grieving. The text says that. And then if you and look in verse seven, it says that the Lord will blot man from uh, from the earth. So he's going to wipe out humanity for I am sorry that I made him. So once again, this connection of, of regretting and, and grieving and sorry is right there, right there on the text that, that God True. is anguishing. Well, what's himself. he sorry, sorry about? Huh? What's, what's the reason he's sorry? What is he sorry about? He's sorry that humanity has become uh, this wicked and, and this evil. 
But I don't think that in any sense that he is uh, surprised that humanity has become uh, this wicked and evil. And, and one reason that we know that wouldn't be the case is because back in Genesis chapter 3, he's the one who said that there's going to be this seed of uh, Satan who is going to attack the seed of the woman. And eventually the seed of uh, the woman is going to crush the seed of Satan. So how is, is God confused that humanity is going to turn out wicked if he's already prophesied and communicated there's going to be this long uh, line of the seed of the serpent that's going to be wiping out uh, the, the seed of the woman who's ultimately going to be defeated by Christ. I, I just doesn't because that doesn't that's not that's not a Christological prophecy is the answer. But it says that the God it grieved him in his heart that he has made man. So it tells tells us the reason that he's regretting his own actions in creation of man. Well, I want to go back there. You said that's not a Christological uh, uh, passage. Uh, what would you take that as? Well, uh, number one, uh, Satan is not described anywhere in the Bible as uh, being the serpent in Genesis three. Um, you, you don't you don't find that connection, and so it has to be assumed on the text that this is not just a talking serpent, which is it's it's not explicit in the text that this is anything but a talking serpent. And then the explicit language is what nor normal Jews will take this as this is just about animosity between man and serpent, which is pretty historical that, uh, you know, serpents and men don't get along. Yeah, I, I'm surprised that uh, surprised that you say that. Um, certainly, I would say that Revelation identifies the serpent of old uh, as 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 Satan. I think that's a um, reference that to it... Isaiah that there, there's a reference to the serpent and the dragon. And then you see the same yeah. reference in Revelation. So I think it's referencing Rahab, the, the, the sea monster, rather than this Genesis 3 serpent. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. I think that there might be multiple connections that uh, the, the, the Rahab and uh, the sea monster and Isaiah is also alluding back to Genesis. Maybe. And Revelation, Revelation is alluding back to, uh, to both. But you don't find um, it contextually in Genesis three. You don't find any indication this is a Satan or Satan. Um, I would say the, the very fact that he's speaking uh, gives a uh, high suggestion that this is a, a serpent that is functioning um, more than just simply an animal, uh, but that this animal is uh, being possessed by by some kind of uh, some kind of spiritual thing that's that's causing it uh, to be able to speak. And we, we also see that the demons uh, talk through men in, in the New Testament. Well, Jesus has a famous conversation with a, a legion of demons. And so it's not the man who's speaking, it's the demon speaking. So it's not unprecedented for demons to uh, to be in the host of, 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 of creatures, right? They even get into pigs. So we know not only can demons get into uh, humans, but they can also get into animals. And at least we have cases where, where they're in the uh, human, they're allowed to speak through it. So... So um, how about in the Balaam situation in which his horse talks to him, the horse seems yeah. to be the rational actor in, in the speaking incident there and not being possessed. I think that's a, a good counterexample. Uh, so there's some kind of uh, miraculous experience that God is opening um, and doing something miraculous there with the donkey so that the donkey can speak. So I, I agree with you that it's theoretically possible that God, through some miraculous ability, could cause an animal uh, to, to speak. But I'm just saying that uh, I think that the, the very fact that it's speaking suggests that uh, some supernatural reality is, is happening there. And, it, and that's not, uh, it, that's very much compatible with uh, demonic uh, activity. Right. So in Genesis 3 1, the serpent is. Uh, 
The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. It seems to be being numbered among the beasts. And so uh, just my my little aside there was it, it's not clear that this is a Christological prophecy. You don't find real indications that Satan's even acting in this passage. And so that's a real possibility we need to examine. And it's not a good counter argument against Genesis 6 being God God regretting making man and then wiping out all of mankind. Well, I mean, I would say that if your interpretation is correct, it wouldn't be a good <coughs> counter argument. But I, I would say the mass majority of Christians um, and even the, the New Testament uh, picks up this language of, 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 of treading on serpents and, and, um, and scorpions and so forth and treading on the head of, of Satan that and even the the seed of woman and, and identifying as individual, I would say the vast majority of Christians. I mean, you, you apply to some uh, Jewish commentators, which uh, Paul himself says the veil is over their eyes. They they just refuse to see mm-hmm. what what is there in, in, in the text. If, if we see uh, the the events of Jesus Christ, it's very hard not to see this scripture as in fact a prophecy of Jesus crushing the head of the serpent. And, and let me say one other thing. Jesus says that that the serpent that uh, that people are children of the devil. John makes a big deal about this: the people are the children of the devil or the children of, of of God, right? And we even have two genealogies in Genesis: one tracing what seems to be the seed of the serpent, which is Cain's line, and then and then Seth's line. So so while I agree with you that this might not be an absolute uh, drag out knockdown case. I would say that I, I think, nevertheless, most Christians would, in fact, see that this is, in fact, a Christological passage, and this passage does predict opposition between two lines, which, in fact, you I think you would agree does, in fact, happen. The rest of the Bible clarifies that that is what happens, and so it's hard for me to believe then, if, if this is all correct, I know you dispute that, then somehow God is then confused and surprised all of a sudden um, that uh, that humanity is wicked when he's already— I predicted that would be the case here. So uh, it, it, I would say that traditional scholarship on the Old Testament will see Genesis 6 as God learning about mankind. He, he states the reason he's going to destroy them is that uh, evils, he finds that they're evil. They have evil intents on their heart. And uh, that's the reason the whole world's destroyed. Then after the flood, the reason that he's going to never again destroy mankind is for the exact same reason, that he learns that they are evil from their youth. It seems to be God recalculating and uh, learning about mankind and then lowering his standards in response to this newfound knowledge about mankind. Yeah, I just, I, I don't really, I mean, what is God learning? I mean, how did, how did God, how did God all of a sudden come to realize, I mean, he's had thousands of, I believe at, at this point, thousands of years of human history and seeing uh, millions potentially of people being born and, and seeing them uh, be wicked from conception on. I don't know how all of a sudden God is, is figuring uh, figuring out that man is wicked before that. And and I really don't see that. I see that the, what the, the, um, the reason why God doesn't destroy humanity is because God still has a plan, namely to uh, save a people through, through Christ. And speaking, this almost makes it sound like that you wouldn't, you don't think that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, and that Christ was the the, the plan uh, from the beginning to save all of humanity. Because because if he is, I don't know how you're kind of making these statements 
it, it sounds like Christ is a, a major plan B for you instead of uh, being plan A if all of a sudden he, he wants to wipe out humanity and, and, and that's what he wanted to do. Yeah, the phrase is uh, catabole cosmos, uh, downthrowing of, of the universe, downthrowing of the world, which could refer to the creation of the universe. It could refer to the fall of Adam. It could refer to uh, the Genesis 6 narrative. And so it's 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 really dangerous to take a phrase and, and then just try to apply uh, a specific meaning on it with without uh, examining possible meanings of what it means. So just to be clear, you would take the foundation of the world that he, he does these things from the foundation of the world would be that at Genesis 6, that now he's deciding to save humanity through Christ? Uh, that That's a very real possibility. It could have been a plan after uh, the, the fall in Genesis as well. But again, everything's conditional. If you wipe out of all of humanity, then you don't have to implement that type of plan. These are these these are possibilities. Uh, I'm not saying that anyone has to side with any single possibility. Or the language in the New Testament, a lot of times people use hyperbolic statements. Paul says, these people knew me from the beginning. And he's not saying these people knew me from the beginning of all the world that's ever happened. And he uses the word uh, foreknowledge of, of, about people. He's just saying, these guys have known me for a long time. Time. And so you got to be very careful with language, uh, assigning hard and fast meanings to it when there's other possibilities that are available to us. Yeah, I, I would say that language is, is always kind of slippery that way, and there's there's always a plethora of possibilities. But when you have a multiplicity of scriptures uh, that continue to be seemingly to communicate the same thing, that you have uh, a multiplicity of scriptures that say God uh, laid the foundation of the world, for example. And then you have other scriptures that seem to be uh, saying that God has chose us before the foundation of the world, or Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, or, or Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And you just have this compiling of scriptures. It seems to be uh, bringing clarity to, you know, what, what it's meaning. So one scripture all alone, you know, there's less clarity. But when you compile this and bring it all together, you start systematizing it and, and, and coming to a, a better conclusion. See, there's even conflation going on in what you just said, because like the Revelation passages, use the word apo, since, and they don't use the word pro before. And uh, there's passages that talk about all the prophets which have been slain since the foundation of the world. And what that means is uh, all the prophets who've ever been killed, and that's what it means, using apo from the foundation of the world or since the foundation of the world. And th yeah. those prepositional phrases in Revelations, it's pretty clear it's referring not to Jesus who is slain. Uh, that's part of the book, the, the book of Christ slain. It's referring to the names not written because we get two instances of the same phrase. And in one, you have the lamb slain and in one it's missing. And But you still have the since the foundation of the world in both those passages and the names not written. So more likely yeah. that prepositional phrase is not referring to Christ being slain since the foundation of the world. Yeah, I'd have to look at that. I, I know the word apa actually means uh, from, um, not not sense. Now, contextually, it might have a meaning of, of sense, but, but the actual uh, plain meaning of, of that preposition is from. Um, so I, I still don't see how that disputes what I said, which was I actually used that very phrase, from the foundation of the world. Um, but but yeah, we could we could look at uh, maybe uh, that passage uh, sometime. But I'm just saying that the, the preposition you just gave me you just said the word opera means sense, and I'm saying that actually the word opera in its plain meaning means from. 
um, that that's a standard preposition. Uh, ha prepositions have wide semantic ranges of meaning. And so for that's why I gave that Luke passage as an example, all the prophets slain since the foundation of the world, Apo. And so it, yeah, it's, it's not, too, though. it'd be I'm, fine just to say from the foundation of the world. Like there, there's no, just, it, there's no reason not to just say from the, I mean, you can say since, but yeah, I you don't can see say from, from them till now, you know, from then yeah. till now, it, since uh, it's, it, they're, they're synonyms. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't have the passages in front of me. And uh, and I've heard this argument before. So I, I would need to look into it uh, more carefully. I'm not disputing uh, you per se, but I'm just saying that the word from Appa itself just means from. And so I would have to look more closely of, of what exactly your argument you're making. It sounds like your argument more is not that it's the word sense, but more that the word Appa is, is connected to something other than Christ being uh, right. slain from the foundation of the world. But the, the word, the prepositions connected to being written in the book somehow, which which might, you might be right. I, I would just need to look into that um, more carefully. So be not written. Uh, uh, the, me, my name's not written. No, we're not written from the foundation. Well, um, real quick, um, and then can we can it's getting a little late. Yeah. Uh, can we close it? I've enjoyed. I'd love to talk to you some more. Yeah. No, um, this is a good conversation. You're my guy. Uh, I like you. Uh, as, as I said, we're best friends. That's what I started this whole conversation out with. No, I think this has been a productive conversation. I think you, you're a very rational person. I think you're very intelligent. I, I am very impressed. I like you. You're my guy. Well, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with you. And that's why I look down and, uh, it's 12 o'clock. I'm like, wow, I need to, I need to get to bed. Um, <laughs> I hate to end the conversation like that, but I, I, I just ultimately do. And hopefully we can talk again, but, but again, I, I I do something um, way long ago that we didn't, I didn't, is I was asking about libertarian free will, and you just said basically the, the choice to do otherwise, which sounds like you are affirming libertarian free will is causal choice that in, in, a, in a situation you could do A or, or not A. Um, and, and there's no uh, there's no sufficient cause of why you choose A or not A. And, and so, but the problem with this is then you start saying statements like God knows the character of, of Peter and he's able to predict his actions. Or as I, I point out, you don't even need to be God. You just be a human being. And you can see that people's uh, actions are, are highly predictable. Yeah. Very rarely do people make uh, unpredictable uh, decisions. And I don't know how that fits with this countercausal uh, ability to choose because it does sound like we do make choices based on our character. Based on in our based on our desire of who we are, so our actions are not arbitrary. Our actions are, in fact, in continuity with our persons. Yeah, that's ab absolutely true. Uh, people are highly predictable, especially in mass. It's hard to predict individual actions on an individual level, unless you really know the person. But claiming someone has a free will does not mean that they just act sporadically and irrationally. In fact, people tend to act in very rational, calculated ways that are very predictable. Uh, but how you'd really test to whether or not there is actually this element of free will is it is God surprised? If God knows all present truths, uh, and God is surprised sometimes by how people act, that means there's genuine free will. That would be that would be our test claim to see if if the Bible actually supports the notion of free will. Yeah, it's interesting. Um... Yeah, I mean, I would, I would also say things, obviously, open theism and about God's omniscience and, and, and all of that. Um, yeah, I, I, it doesn't sound like the free will is necessarily as big of a case for you. It seems to be other 
um, uh, open thing is uh, free will is a major reason why people are becoming uh, become open theists in, in that way because they're desperately trying to make God have them uh, human beings have categorical ability to choose otherwise and they feel like God knowing the future would would somehow inhibit that so anyway well, it, it, it is what one one last point and then we can wrap up I don't want to keep you up too late but uh, throughout the Bible one of God's methods of knowing is often tied to his testing God tests them to see what they will do God will lead leave the uh, pagan nations in in the land of Israel to test them to see if they're going to follow him or not. That type of language uh, is used. Yeah, certainly. I mean, certainly that that language is used uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, again, I would exp I would understand that as phenomenological language. And to me, it's not just anthropomorphic language that we find, but phenomenological is a very uh, important category, which is that things are uh, described their experience from humanity. So oftentimes the perspective isn't from God's you know, divine beyond perspective, which we have no idea what it's like, uh, which wouldn't make any sense to us. Often uh, the perspective we find in the Bible is actually from an earthly level, a human, a human perspective. And so, uh, so certainly from a human perspective in time, uh, we're tested and, uh, and we're seen of, of whether we'll, we'll do X or Y. Um, but, and that's how things flush out here on the earth is, is what I'm ultimately arguing. And again, I, I see that God's not only outside of time, but he's in time and he interacts with us in time. And so that, that's kind of the, the main thing I want to kind of communicate to you is what in, in the beginning of the conversation and, and throughout, you, you almost kept uh, suggesting that since I believe that God knows the future, somehow it's like almost fatalism, that it's not open and uh, we don't make any real choice, real relationship with God. And I just don't see how any of that actually follows. I think we very much can have uh, this open because we are creating the future by the decisions that we make. It's just that God knows what decisions that we are going to make. But, but that doesn't make the future not open. Just like uh, when we when we end here and, and this becomes a recording, just because it's, it's, uh, it's fixed doesn't mean that what we did was not open while we were doing it. And so philosophy is probably a different conversation that we could have, whether or not knowing the future fates that future to happen. And I'd, I'd be happy to have that conversation with you, um, but uh, we probably don't got time for that. I would I would argue that if if we're going to be talking a philosophy, that the type of knowledge that you ascribe to God, in which it's a hundred percent knowledge that of true propositions that cannot be falsified, that does make a fatalistic future. That must happen. Not even God can convert can subvert the future in that case. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I would say that there's a difference between a fixed future, though. And I would say uh, the, the the difference is that a fixed future just means that it will necessarily happen because that is what happened, right? I mean, you can't ha if, if I'm going to do something, then I can't not do what I'm going to do because then I didn't do it, if, if that makes sense. But there's no other um, but, possibility. Well, no, no, there are plenty of possibilities. There, there were plenty of possibilities. It's just that those other possibilities were not actualized. And so those the, other possibilities all uh, remain as contingent possibilities. A possibility has to have a chance of happening. And this knowledge that you're ascribing to God is eternal, ungenerated knowledge that's, uh, that's with God from all eternity, right? Not even yeah, God well, we can don't really, convert. Well, the problem is we don't, we don't even understand what any of that really means. I mean, just to be honest. We have no idea what, what really that that actually means. We're trying to, God says, my ways are not 
are your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And we're pretending like we understand what, what an eternal divine perspective is, which we have absolutely no idea uh, of, of what an eternal divine perspective is. So certainly God knows all, all things uh, from eternity past, but we have no idea how God does uh, know those things. It is just uh, completely mysterious uh, to us. But nevertheless, what God knows is uh, the things that he will uh, permit and allow us to do is, is really what I'm arguing. And so, no, it's not true that we don't have possibilities. Possibilities and contingent realities are, are there. They just will always be possibilities and contingent realities because we didn't choose them, right? Because we didn't actualize them. It will always be true, just like in the past. Again, back to the past. There, there are contingent realities in the past. They just were contingent and possibilities instead of actualized. And what actually happened is the necessary truth because it necessarily did occur in that sense. But those modal, those modal statements are always still true, is what I would say. Not with a God outside of time in which all events are always foreknown from time eternity in his mind. There's no possibility. There is no scenario in which anything other than what actualizes actually actualizes. Yeah, again, I would I would challenge you to say God outside of time. What is that? What do you even mean by that? Um, I think it's a nonsense statement, so I don't think God's outside of time. Well, I'm glad you think it's a nonsense. Well, I'm not glad you think it's a nonsense statement. <laughs> I'm glad that I'm glad that you're wrestling with this and, and seeing that. Uh, it just simply saying that as if we know what that means is is a gross uh, miscalculation of what time is. We are spatial temporal creatures that can only think in in finite categories. So pretending like we can get from a timeless perspective and then say what necessarily follows from that to me is 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 gross again, uh, but it's just not true. We, we just don't know what timeless reality is because we're temple creatures. Right. You, you talked about the type of knowledge that God has. God has knowledge that he doesn't accumulate new propositions. So this the, these propositions are basically timeless propositions that cannot be falsified. There's no possibility of them not actualizing the way they are eternally foreknown. The type of omniscience you ascribe to God is a fatalistic omniscience that oh, no, must just, happen. No. I'm saying that God knows uh, all propositions. God knows all truth. But I'm, but I'm also saying I don't know how God knows all truth. He just he just does. But he doesn't gain truth. this truth at some point. There, There's no point in history where he gains this truth. Like he, he's not sitting around well, saying, how am I going to create the world? And then he decides how he's going to create the world because that's him making free actions that are not foreknown, uh, creating new things that to add to his knowledge. Once again, I... I would be very careful about saying I know what God, how God operates in uh, the realm outside of the spatial temporal reality. I just don't know that. No, I'm not saying that God doesn't sit around and think about things. I have no idea. I'm just saying I'm epistemic humility here. I have no idea what what God in His uh, transcendent reality is doing, and I can't possibly know that. Is is my point? And I'm saying not only can I not possibly know that. But nobody can possibly know what that is. We just know that God is timeless, but that's it. I can say nothing about timeless reality and what necessarily follows timeless reality. None of that makes any sense. Um, and, and, and none of that actually fleshes out because we don't know what timeless reality is. Timeless reality is merely a negation of time-bound reality, but but that's all that, that's all it is. We don't know anything of, about what that entails. But you already gave it's, me a lot of your data sets. God doesn't gain any knowledge in any sense. And these, his, these propositions that he knows can't not occur they can't be falsified or, yeah, but some or else of god would know it oh yes but some of those propositions that he knows are the things that he will do like actualize the world 
right? So it can't be falsified because he's going to do it, uh, w namely actualize, actualize the world. So some of those propositions- That doesn't change my argument. Are, are, are... <laughs> yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I'm Maybe I'm just not, maybe I'm too tired to understand. Oh, it, it, that's that's why I said this is probably a different conversation because it's it would probably go like an hour or two in itself. Probably okay, not. Maybe we'll talk, maybe we'll talk about that next time. Proper how how exactly God having omniscience somehow leads ultimately to fatalism. Even if I say I don't know how God, and it's mysterious to me how God knows the future, and you're saying nevertheless that ultimately leads to fatalism. I'm not necessarily following right. Uh, Arminians aren't following. Calvinists aren't following. So uh, I'm not alone here. Agree with me, typically. Um, I, Calvinists typically agree with you when it comes to uh, uh, libertarian free will. When it comes to that uh, that actions cannot be uh, this counter causal uh, actions cannot be uh, arbitrary and yet known, and, and that's a different argument. And I, I'm somewhat impressed with that, but but not fully persuaded about that argument. So I, I'm willing to be persuaded by that. But um, but, but anyways, that, that's a different conversation. Well, brother, it's been, it's been, uh, you've been wonderful. You've been very kind to me. Had a, a wonderful time, hopefully. Yeah, we'll hopefully definitely have to talk again. This is great. Yeah. So you have, uh, we'll, we'll contact each other. Can I, can I, uh, can I close in prayer? Yes, absolutely. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for uh, allowing us to have this conversation. I ask God that we uh, would be uh, have shown that uh, Christians can uh, discuss these things and talk about them and and not be nasty, not be rude, uh, not be disrespectful to each other. God, I ask that you would help us to believe truth. If you do not know the future, um, if you don't have these classical attributes, God, we want to know and and we don't want to believe that. But if you do have these attributes, uh, we don't want to discard them. We don't want to radically rethink you. We want to believe who you are, God. We want to know who you are. So please help us to know who you are, to believe who you are, and to uh, to love the God who, who saved us. That's what we want. We want to know you and love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Amen. thank you very much for thank the you. conversation. All right. We'll have to do it again. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. -bye. All right. Bye. -bye. Bye.